That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, I found out some things about the presidents today. You know the presidents... It was President's Day yesterday. You know, there are some states that only celebrate George Washington. They uh, literally celebrate George Washington's birthday. We celebrate all the presidents, as far as I know. Even the ones like uh, Harry S. Truman and Ulysses S. Grant. Did you know? Did you know, uh, Stephen, what the S stands for? In Ulysses S. Grant. I don't know. Or Harry S. Truman. It's just S. It doesn't, there's no name. They just picked a middle name and it's an initial. John, I don't know if you John knew that. S. Canzano? <laughs> I, I gotta ask Stephen A. Smith. What does the A stand for? You know. It just sounds good. Just an A, man. Um, I celebrate the presidents. People laugh at me when I say that, you know, but I appreciate a three-day weekend as much as the next person. Rather enjoyed it, but I was chomping at the bit to get on the radio show today because there was a lot that seemed to happen in the last 96 hours or so. A lot happened, including the College Football Playoff Board of Managers meeting, Deciding some things that matter in your world, certainly in the world of college football. They'll continue to meet tomorrow. Kirk Schultz, president at Washington State, held in a very important vote, and he was the holdout. And, um, you know, I asked him today, did you get everything you need? And he says, I think so. We'll see how it works out. I think he's talking about the conversations that will continue tomorrow and uh, beyond with the college football playoff. For those of you tracking it, uh, the board of managers that include the Washington State president voted unanimously. And by the way, it has to be a unanimous vote. Like, I'm not, that's not something I'm used to. Like, in our family, in the family I grew up in, on this radio show, I always approach things like they, there can be more, more than one answer. And I think sometimes that's the best sports radio topic, right? It's not, you know, uh, is Michael Jordan a great player? You know, there's there's not more than one answer to that. But if you start to dissect something along the lines of really asking the questions that matter, um, you know, would Michael Jordan's game have been as dominant or more dominant in this era or the era he played in? You start to get different answers. You start to get different viewpoints. But the College Football Playoff Board of Managers, their, their bylaws say that it, it has to pass 11-zip. So it has to be unanimous. And so Kirk Schultz, the president of Washington State, held a very important role in deciding what was going to happen moving forward because he was the vote that counted. 
he was the vote that everybody was going, hey, he's the holdout. And uh, he uh, he ended his holdout, and the board of managers voted unanimously to adopt a five by seven, um, five by seven, uh, uh, you know, uh, grouping for the college football playoff, meaning seven at large bursts, five automatic qualifiers. Uh, the old format was going to be six by six on the twelve team playoff, six automatic qualifiers, uh, six highest uh, ranked conference champions plus six at large. It will be the five highest ranked conference champions and seven at large berths. And the dirty little secret is that Oregon State and Washington State supported the five by seven because it, you know, they consider themselves at large candidates in the next couple of years. Um, the change for 2024 and 2025 adds one at large spot and it uh, decreases the automatic qualifiers from six to five in light of the Pac 12 realignment situation. But, uh, and that was an easy, that was an easy call. But also now it, there, there, there seems to be some discussion from the college football playoffs presidents or the board of managers uh, about some conferences wanting more than one automatic qualifier spot beyond the next two seasons. There's a lot of uh, speculation that it's the Big Ten Conference. Apparently somebody floated the idea of four automatic qualifiers from one conference. Roll your eyes. Uh, shouldn't surprise you a bit. You heard Greg Sankey on Friday's show, SEC Commissioner. I, I mean, they think they're the greatest thing in the world. So does the Big Ten. They're all lobbying for landscape and position, and they're all lobbying for dollars, and they all think their conferences are the greatest ever. But um, in the end, uh, I do think that they are threatening to ruin or kill the Golden Goose and at the very least not learn from what we've all tried to tell college administrators about the NCAA tournament. The beauty of the NCAA tournament is the opening Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday of competition. 64 teams, uh, automatic qualifiers from small conferences, playing against you know the number one seeds, the four number one seeds. You got 16s against ones. You have twos against 15s. Yeah, of course you get some bad games in there. It happens. But you also get some beautiful upsets, some thrilling finishes. You get George Mason in the Final Four. You get Davidson. You get Lehigh. You get some you get some opportunities to see you know schools that you you barely have heard of compete. And I've been at those NCAA tournament events. I've covered maybe 20 of them. And on the opening weekend, and I got to tell you, like it's a it's a beautiful thing to be in St. Louis or to be in Spokane or to be in the Bay Area or to be wherever they are holding the opening round, and to watch the home crowd side up with Albany, a fifteen or a sixteen seed, and start cheering for them as they're playing Kansas or Kentucky. Or Duke, and it's it's a marvelous thing to watch that unfold, and it's great, and it's part of the beauty of the college basketball tournament. And it feels to me like Greg Sankey on Friday alluded to the idea that he did not think that the NCAA tournament uh, is good in its present form. He talked about expansion, and uh, I, you know, my pushback on that is how do we keep the charm of the NCAA tournament if you're knocking out automatic qualifiers in small conferences. 
you know, how do you keep the mid-major dream alive in the NCAA tournament? I, I would offer that, you know, watering down the field is an interesting term because I don't think that's a one-way observation. Um, and, and highly competitive teams, again, those 11 seeds that have advanced mm-hmm. far in the NCAA tournament, uh, having more of that type of team involved does not water down the tournament. Um, I think the committee has been engaged in this review. Uh, I, I'm supportive of that review. I don't predict outcomes. I think part of what I have a responsibility to do, given the role, is identify things to be addressed, and uh, we'll see uh, what, what they come out with. I, I do, uh, again, go back to the reason I made the observation, uh, I think back in the summer of 22, uh, and a Pat Forty article was I had heard so many people concerned about things being taken away. So how about we pivot our thinking and suggest it doesn't always have to be the way that it is. What might be a way to draw on highly competitive teams and still keep uh, March uh, a focal point for college basketball? I just think they're going to ruin the NCAA tournament, and I think they're going to try to ruin the college football playoff by the Big Ten Conference or the SEC. And by the way, they have formed this working group. I Now they're floating the idea in these meetings of multiple automatic qualifiers from those conferences. You're going to ruin the college football playoff before we've even expanded to 12. You know, they're going to try to grab multiple automatic qualifiers in the Big Ten and the SEC, as many as four. That idea has been floated. And I my hope is that the board of managers and the commissioners will have the fortitude to push back and say, no, the rankings should dictate who gets into the college football playoff. The CFP rankings should dictate that. Conference champions should go. And then beyond that, it needs to be there needs to be a system where Boise State, Oregon State, Washington State, um, schools like Tulane and others – Big 12 conference teams, ACC teams have an opportunity to finish in the top 12 in the rankings, get an at-large berth, and earn their way into the postseason by virtue of their regular season performance. I don't want to see the fourth-place team from the Big 10 get an automatic berth into this playoff. And if that's where it's headed, this isn't a playoff. Again, we have uh, the equivalent of... This four-team invitational tournament expanded to a 12-team invitational tournament with too many automatic qualifiers. You need to be a conference champion. That's it. There should be no other automatic qualification into the field. I'm going to get arguments from people who say the second-place team in the Big Ten or the second-place team in the SEC should deserve to get in. Well, maybe they get in, but it should be by virtue of an at-large berth and not an automatic qualification. I hope they do the right thing thing keep an eye on that in the next 24 hours as they are uh, trying to hammer out some of the details for the cfp expansion and they're also trying to hammer out the tv detail or the tv deal for the expanded playoff as well beyond the next two years uh, when we start talking about after 2025 and the playoff it you know there's a new tv deal espn was said to have a deal in principle done uh, subsequently, the Athletic reported that. Second, subsequently, Yahoo Sports, one of the Athletic's competitors, says, no, that was wrong. We now know it was wrong. Bob Thompson, the former president of Fox Sports Network, saying, 
you know, there's no deal there. There's no deal there. Like, how do you have a deal if you don't know the format? If you don't know, you know, that until today that there were seven at-large berths, how do you, you know, how do you have a deal? So I, I think there's a, just still a lot to be determined in that college football playoff space. And I'm eager to see it work out right because so much of what you have invested as a fan and I have invested as a media member has left us moving from a system where the AP poll and the coaches poll picked a national champion to the BCS debacle where the computers picked the two teams that got in and not always got it right. And then now to the four-team invitational tournament, which clearly has not always been right. Some years, yes. Some years, no. Now to a 12-team field that we're hoping is a lot like the NCAA tournament. Like, why can't they just um, do what's right for the game instead of fighting over what's right for their conferences and what their conferences are deserve? And now you have the Big Ten Conference apparently floating this idea that they, they would like to have four automatic qualifiers. Well, cool. Uh, you know, maybe the Pac-2 should get two automatic qualifiers. That wouldn't be right either. So it should be merit-based, and and let's hope that they do the right thing in the next 24 hours. Uh, another other thing, I'm going to pivot a little bit here to the weekend. Man, I thought the All-Star game was mostly a miss. I hated seeing what the All-Star game has become. Um, the LED court, 400 points scored. You know, just ridiculous. It's just a joke. I, I'm not into the game. I know the game's not made for me, but I'm not into it. Didn't like the dunk competition. But I got to say, the highlight of the weekend for me was like watching Sabrina Ionescu and, and Steph Curry battle in that three-point contest. I thought it was the absolute best part of the event. I thought it was a big win for Steph. It was a big win for Sabrina. She represented herself well. Shot from the NBA three-point line, uh, scored as many points as you know the eventual winner of the men's three-point competition, Damian Lillard had. That you know she represented herself well, did okay, but uh, missed a couple of shots that you know probably she'd like to have back. But I thought it was a really strong performance. And then Steph came in and and one-upped her, and it was uh, it was pretty cool to watch that and. Subsequently, you know, win for Steph Curry, a win for the NBA, a win for Sabrina Inescu in a lot of ways, and a win for the WNBA, a win for fans, a win for the TV partners. I mean, it was just a huge success. And then what, what happens afterwards? It's Kenny Smith coming in and just basically, uh, you know, raining all over the parade. And, and uh, an awkward exchange, of course, as... Uh, you know, uh, Reggie Miller and others have pushed back against him. It was just, you know, it was really awkward. And, you know, I thought it was a great moment, but Kenny Smith blew it. I, I, I think she should have shot from the women's line. She should have shot from the women's line. That would have been a fair contest. I still root for Sabrina. I still root for Sabrina. We all are rooting for Sabrina. No. She should have shot from the three-point line that the women shoot from. Why are you putting those boundaries on her? That's she, not a boundary. She That's what the game is. She wanted to shoot. They have a smaller ball, don't they? She shot a WNBA ball. WNBA ball is smaller. She shot with the WNBA yeah, ball. She, she should have shot from the line. It, it, there's it, a women's team. tee in golf and there's a men's tee. For a reason. No. 
Shoot, shoot or shoot. Is that what you said? Yeah, but they shoot from where they shoot from. No. Thank you. No, no, no. Sabrina Good job, you. Sabrina. No, but, but don't let any man put boundaries on you like him. Uh, well, then give him a regular ball, then. Don't let give him any man put boundaries on you. Give him a regular ball, then. It's not fair. A lot of backlash at Kenny Smith. I think he deserves it. Reggie Miller not only knows enough and knows better, he has a sister named Cheryl who is a pretty good shooter, really good shooter, maybe the best women's professional and collegiate player ever. Apologies to Sabrina. Apologies to Caitlin Clark. Reggie Miller knows and I think understands. But I I hear Kenny Smith basically saying, Stay in the kitchen and put an apron on when he's talking about shoot from the WNBA line. I think this was bad for the the event. I think it rained all over it. Kenny's responding now to the backlash. Yeah, I think it's much to do about nothing, Stephen, uh, honestly. Um, most people who know basketball understood what I was talking about. Actually, I was advocating for her more than anything else because – Basketball is all is muscle memory. Right. So he practices from one range. She practices from the other. There's even a study, I think, with somebody throwing darts, the guy with those darts. Okay. And if you move him out one step, his accuracy changes dramatically. Mm. But the funny thing about it, if you move him in one step, his accuracy changes because you take so many shots from the exact same thing. So I'm like, why is he getting the, the advantage mm. to shoot at his line that's mm. an advantage it does it's not gender it's not genetic it's an advantage it's a muscle shooting it's only muscle memory and so that's what kind of i don't know people who don't you know actually play the sport mm. don't understand it's all muscle memory but the second part i think well i think when reggie like was joking around about oh so she could play with dolls because it was a comment i think that sabrina when she was younger right that someone said you should play dolls and stop my thought, I have daughters. So my thought, when I first heard that, I was like, what's wrong with that? You mm. should play with dolls and you could do sports. So I actually said it. Right. Like, you should play with dolls. And I screamed my daughter's names out. London, mm. Kayla, you can play with dolls. But see, most people just don't check the tape. They mm. want to just check the bait. You right. know what I mean? And by the So way, they want to have bait. My, my instrument track record is, is speaks for itself. Well, I, I just find it embarrassing for Kenny Smith. Especially because, you know, you, I work in a world of sports and you observe a world of sports that we know if we turn back the clock to a time before women's basketball was a thing, uh, to a time not that long ago, a generation ago or two, where girls in schools were not allowed to play sports. And I'm not even talking about Title IX. I'm talking about girls that just weren't allowed to go and play. And I think if we continue to go back, we can find a time in our history when people said, oh, people of color, you know, shouldn't be allowed to play certain sports. How about Major League Baseball and the color barrier? And I hear some of that in Kenny Smith's diatribe about let her shoot from the line. I think he's trying to recreate what he said by walking it back, oh, the dolls, I let my I tell my kids to go play with dolls or muscle memory. It's not at all what he was saying in the wake of Sabrina Ionescu shooting pretty well from the NBA line in a competition that was 
for me, a lot like the competitions that kids across America make up in the cul-de-sac or out at the playground when they say, okay, we're going to shoot from this part of the court, whoever makes, let's see who makes the most. I love that element of this competition. And I think it has really cast a negative light on an otherwise, I thought, dismal weekend for the NBA. The game was just embarrassing. And the dunk contest is just, forget it. There's nothing there for me anymore. But I was watching a woman who plays in the WNBA pretty much go shot for shot with the best shooters in the NBA from three-point range and only lose to a generational superstar who, you know, is absolutely lights out. I wanted more. I wanted a rematch. And in the wake of that, unfortunately, all the conversation has been about Kenny Smith, including the conversation to start the show, Kenny Smith and... You know, there's a reason why the women's tees are shorter than the men's tees in golf. Never mind, like, you know, if Annika Sorenstam, who once upon a time played and wanted to play in the men's events, never mind if Sabrina said, you know what, I want to hit from the men's tees. Let's see how it goes. And she holds her own. That should have been the conversation in the wake. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. we got a great show for you today. Leave it locked in. Stephen A. Smith did not like the All-Star game. I thought it was kind of gross myself. What transpired last night was an absolute travesty. Nearly 400 points were scored. No defense, no effort whatsoever. This is the ultimate indictment against the NBA stars who show up on NBA All-Star Weekend. You play harder in the summer league when you train it. If you want to show such a flagrant disregard for the fans, for the audience, knowing that the product that you're putting out there is trash from the All-Stars. I'm talking about superstars on the court together, all right, going up against one another, and you don't care to compete? Why should we watch? There, Yeah, why should we watch? Guess what? Kind of done with it. Steven, what did you make of the whole weekend and then I got to know what you thought of Kenny Smith's comments. Yeah, I mean, the whole weekend, it is a joke. The actual game is a joke. The fact that a team can score 200 points, like, you can't take it seriously. And I saw a lot of Blazer fans really excited for Dame. And, oh, the Dame's come back second half of the season. You can't take this seriously. There's no defense being played. Nobody cares. The best player in the sport, Nikola Jokic, cares zero about this game. And I think that's what says it all. There's nothing you can do to solve it because the guys aren't going to start playing defense ever. Like, they're never going to play defense. So, it's either you know do away with the game kind of like the NFL has done and gone to a flag football format and do something else, maybe a one-on-one tournament or something. But if you're going to go five-on-five, five, the teams just aren't going to care. And so it's just it's just kind of a problem that the NBA, I don't think, cares about really. So that's my take on the game. The Sabrina-Kenny Smith part, I, you know, I'm with you. I don't agree with what Kenny Smith said because the one thing is in life, I hate being people put people in a box, whether it's sports or political or anything – they take one comment from you or one thing you do and they put you in a box and you'll never get out. And that's what Kenny Smith did to Sabrina there because Sabrina's a female. She can't get out of the box that, Oh, she can do something different or she can play with the men or she can shoot at the same line as the men. He says, no, she's a female. She has to do it this way. No, she can do whatever she wants. And she shot better than, like you said, every single play, every single guy in the three point contest. She had a great showing. It was really entertaining. I would love to see it again. I imagine when Caitlin Clark gets to WNBA, she'll do the same thing, and they'll have her go up against you know Damian Lillard or Steph Curry or some type of team format because people will watch that. People want to see that kind of stuff, and it's more fun 
than what the NBA is putting out there any other way. So I just thought it was really out of line what Kenny Smith said and just put Sabrina in a box like that. Sabrina takes it, you know, just takes it and off the chin and just plays off it and says, you know what, if you can shoot, you can shoot. And, that, and that's really what it comes down to. You know what, when you were growing up and, and, and you were playing – uh, with the guys and in middle school you want to play on that team and they wouldn't let you play on the boys team they said you be, should be playing with dolls uh, we've come a long way since since those days but you represent so much here on this night just continuing to use my platform and I think a night like tonight shows um, a lot of young girls and young boys that if you can shoot you can shoot and um, it, it doesn't matter um, if you're a girl or boy I think it just matters the heart that you have and wanting to be the best that you can be you know what you can shoot that's for sure she can shoot uh, you know they they just miss out on so much like you know it's clear they don't know her story they don't know who she is they don't know that she's a twin. She's got a brother. They don't, you know, the fact that, like, you know, we've had her on the show and talked to her about competing against her brother in the driveway and how he made her better. And, you know, her parents deserve some credit, too, because I think, you know, anytime I see a high-level women's athlete in the Olympics or in a major sport and I see them competing i i immediately go back to like okay what was that upbringing like what was the what were the boundaries that were placed on this person or not placed on this person and anybody who knows sabrina Ionescu's parents or has talked to him and i have understands like you know that they uh there was no ceiling for her and she's at where she's at by her own hard work and and uh all of her virtue and her talent and you know we had her on during the pandemic and what was she doing she couldn't get in the gym, right? She was list, lifting grocery bags filled with canned goods in her parents' you know, kitchen. And she's just a competitor. And so I was rooting for her to win the thing. and But I also wasn't, like, not in a charitable way. Like, I wasn't going, oh, come on, like the little engine that could. Like, I actually thought, Stephen, as I was watching it, that if Steph Curry didn't shoot well, like really well, he was going to get beat. And that is... To me, very exciting to see uh, a player of Sabrina's caliber playing against, uh, shooting against Steph Curry, and then to watch the competition and see Damian Lillard and others score exactly what Sabrina did. I mean, like, it just jumped out at me like she belongs there. Oh, 100%. And the fact that Steph wanted to win so badly, like, you could tell when they were doing the little pregame stuff, like, Steph wanted to win that. He was taking it dead serious, and he was, he wanted to win that thing. And, Sabrina had so much pressure on her, John, and that, you know, it impresses me. I knew that Sabrina would, she wouldn't crumble under pressure, but like to have all the eyes on her and to know that you're going to get hate no matter what, no matter what she does, whether she wins, whether she loses, there's going to be a lot of hate out there about Sabrina. Yeah. But she just, she was awesome out there and she you know went above and beyond what I think a lot of people and anybody really expected out of her and how she performed and how she handled herself. Like it's not a surprise to us that I've seen her and seen her in her career, but I mean, to do that on the national stage, it was awesome. It was awesome to see Steph go out, do his thing, and just show that, you know what, basketball is for everybody. Like, everybody can play basketball. It doesn't matter what you are, who you are. You can go out and play. Mike in Portland's called in. The number's 503-417-7575. Mike, what you got? Say, so, John, first of all, man, basketball players today are not consummate ball players. When Michael Jordan played basketball, he was a consummate ball player, and nobody compared a female ball player to him. Steph Curry 
is not on that level. So now you got people comparing girls to him. And and I think rightly so because basketball players today don't play playground ball. They play European ball. That's why Jokic, you say he's the best player in basketball today, European, because they're playing his style of game. But if Jokic could be transported back to when Michael Jordan played, when playground basketball was in vogue, he couldn't even be on the court. So so what you guys are doing now is, is you're glorifying a basketball player that's insufficient, that's not consummate. Jump shooting, basketball player, basketball is more than jump shooting. It's dribbling. It's breaking down defense. It's able to get your shot off against a seven-footer. It's, it's being able to play both ends of the court. It's complete. It's not going to the three-point line and jacking up threes. No, that's, that's a skill. Sport. Like, that's a skill we're talking about, though. Three-point shooting is a skill that we're talking about. And I don't think it's fair to say, like, you know, because somebody's a good three-point shooter, they're not a complete basketball player. And I'd also offer that, you know, uh, Nikola Jokic isn't the first big guy to play that style. Arvita Sabonis played that style. Bill Walton played that style in which he could pass, he could score. Uh, you know, I think you could go back in history and you can find players that were similar to Nikola Jokic. But I think it's a skill what Steph Curry's doing when he's shooting a three. And I think Reggie Miller gets it because Reggie Miller was probably in the cul-de-sac shooting against his sister Cheryl. And if he didn't bring his A game, Cheryl beat him. I think that's why Reggie gets it. Chad in Portland. Chad, go ahead. Hey, what's up, John? I love your show. Listen, every chance I get, man. Um, I just wanted to chime in because I feel like I've had this conversation with my son for like a decade now. He's getting ready to be 17. And we talk about how, you know, women are bringing it, man. They're, they're coming up to the level of where men are competing. And they're, they're uh, just say, the fastest man in the world, you know, the 100 meter. We always have that talk about will a woman ever be – have that speed and I'm going to make this wild prediction that within a hundred years of my death, there will be a woman who will be, will have times that are like at the level of men in the 100 meters. I think it's, you know, women weren't given that opportunity. And once they were given that opportunity, you can see how quickly they've caught up to men. And, you know, it's not just a, a, uh, I don't know, it's, I, I always get the feedback that it's a uh, a biological thing, but I think that might be a small part of it, but it's also just the opportunity. And for me, I love what uh, Inescu did, did. You know, I'm a Duck fan, and so I'm kind of biased, but I love her as a player. I love her game, and I want to see all the women go out there and <laughs> show them enough. So anyways, I'll take it offline. Thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. I love that you're having that conversation with your kid. I love that. Dre in Portland. Dre, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jerry. I got to say, as, as, as a, a boy growing up in a household of women athletes, women have always had it. They're just now getting recognized for some things. My aunties showed me how to play basketball. I just got yeah. I, I got to say that it, it's what we're seeing now, but it's always been there. I think that now with the platform and, and them being out there in the WNBA, 
it's great because now we're seeing, you know, what, what they can do. Yeah, Thanks, and I, I love that, that you got that experience with your aunties showing you how to play the game. And Dre is right. Like, it, it's not new. And I got to be honest, like, I had this conversation with my my dad's sister not that long ago. Just I think it was last summer or the summer before. We were just sitting around at a barbecue. We were talking about opportunities that were offered to her or weren't offered to her in sports and in school. And I was blown away like, you know, no, they we weren't allowed to play basketball or we weren't allowed to play any sports. And that's not that long ago. That's not that long. You know, and I thought, gosh, like, how many amazing athletes never got an opportunity, never got a chance? Charlie in Vancouver. Charlie, welcome. Hey, John. I'll take that $1,000 that I won off the kickoff and put it against <laughs> the fact that I put it against the fact oh. that Mike has never seen Sabrina Enescu play. I mean, dude, the girl's got handle. The girl's competitive. She's got game. I don't know if you remember, but 15 years ago, I coached, or called you when I was coaching out at Washougal. Telling you, I had my girls shooting 43s a game and how crazy it was. And they just eat it up. They're competitive as any guys that I've ever met. And to, to hear Mike say that and get away with it, it really frustrates me. I mean, yeah, basketball's a little bit softer than today, but or today than it was 30 years ago. But come on. Yeah. I, I had a gal named Vicki Carl, who was a high school and college All-American at Montana State, who was a the basketball coach at uh, girls basketball coach at Evergreen. We played a level basketball, city league basketball in Vancouver. And dude, the paper ended up writing an article about her because through the halfway through the season, she's shooting fifty percent from threes. And this yeah. isn't what the girls got ball. This is what the guys ball against fifty percent of the guys who played NAI or Division One ball. So yeah, Mike, I love you, but you're off on this one. I appreciate the call. I thought Mike was going in a positive direction because I would agree that Michael Jordan was more of a complete player than some of the players that are playing today. I agree. Like, that makes sense to me. But you can't tell me that what I saw or what I'm seeing now in the women's game, when you talk about the first maybe 16 or 18 teams in the AP poll and the women's side of the bracket, the top 16 or 18 teams, that is really good basketball. There's a drop-off, but I can tell you that that drop-off in the women's bas college basketball game, it used to be around number six. You know, it used to be, oh, there's like Tennessee and UConn and a few others, and then and then there was a drop-off. That drop-off now has it is occurring later in the, in the rankings. There are more good players, more good teams. And what Caitlin Clark is doing and what Angel Reese did and what Sabrina Ionescu did in her time Nothing short of remarkable. Mark in Portland. Mark, welcome to the conversation. Hey, how you doing? First of all, what, watching Sabrina was the most exciting thing of the weekend with her and Seth because, like she said, I'm going up against the greatest, you know, shooter in the men's game uh, and, you know, going blow to blow with it. Sabrina would probably be the favorite in a three-point shooting contest against Michael Jordan. And yeah. uh, But – we have to not lose sight of the fact that in the in the physical part of the game, when, when the guys get serious, I mean, we can't say that they're going to be able to play with, with even Division One. Or I, I would, I'm going to ask you guys this question: Who would win between uh, high school all-star uh, boys against the best uh, WNBA players in the world? 
in a real basketball game. And I think that's where Mike was going a little bit. Yeah. Let's not lose sight of the fact that, you know, of course, women should 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 they, they should be celebrating what they're doing on the court against other women. You know what I'm saying? I mean, right. it, it's the same shooting uh, percentage from three-point range is the same as it is with the men because the men just have a – you know they're born with more physicality and and more speed and those kind of things. But yeah. watching what Sabrina did, we never saw that 25 years ago. We never saw no. a woman that could shoot three, you know, three point shots. So maybe I could be proven wrong. But uh, no, I you know, I I, big... I agree with you on the physicality by and large. I don't know about a high school all star team against a, a really good WNBA team. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. But I think you know, I think certainly a like a small college men's team against the WNBA All-Stars? I don't know. But again, we're t- like the fact that we're having this conversation, it's based upon the idea that in a skill competition, and three-point shooting is a skill, Sabrina Ionescu held her own against the best players in the, in the NBA. It does remind me, like, you know, everybody wants to talk about Bobby Riggs, Billie Jean King, but I think the better comparison is, you know, go, let's go back to 2003. You, people forget Annika Sorenstam played in a PGA tournament tour. First woman to play in a PGA event since 1945, and it drew people in. And people were like, "I got to see this. I got you know. I I'm curious. What is she going to do?" And you know, it wasn't. It didn't have the same impact as as Sabrina shooting against uh, Steph Curry. But I was highly entertained. Steven, I even texted you, and I said, I don't want to miss this. Text me when this thing starts, and no matter where I am, I'm going to pull my phone out, jump on Hulu, and try try to watch this thing. I was locked in. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, my son wanted to watch All-Star Saturday night, so I was doing that, but I mostly wanted to watch the Steph Sabrina thing. Like, if I weren't watching it the whole time, I would have tuned in for that as well, and I'm with you, like... I don't think anybody's saying that Sabrina could play in the NBA. Like that's not that's not anywhere close to what we're saying. But no, it, it's it just shows the growth that women have had in basketball, especially with their skills and how the game has changed. And now that you know what she could compete in a game with with the guys if she just became a shooter. Like she can shoot the ball just as well as the men. And I think that's what we're saying. Like there may be a day when there's a woman that can join the NBA. Join the NBA. Like my son asked me that. He goes. Because he was a little confused about what was happening. He's like, because he's never seen it before. He'd never seen you know a WNBA player you know in the three point contest against Steph Curry. And he's like, well, can a woman be in the NBA? And I said, yeah, eventually there could be, but they're not at that at that point yet. And that's just the kind of the thing. It's like, yeah, we're not saying they should be in the NBA, but at some point, like maybe that does happen, and maybe there is a woman who is like LeBron James that can get to the NBA. And at that point, you have to you got to put her in. Like that's the way it is, and it's okay to dream that if you are a woman, like. You can dream to make the NBA, and I think that's okay to think, and I think Sabrina puts a good spin on it of just saying, you know what, have a dream and go for it. Don't be held back by anybody. Love it. It's the right message. Our big splash coming up, top of the hour. We're going to talk to a media expert, a consultant, who's going to make sense of Oregon State and Washington State's plan. Where are their football games going to be in 2024? And the Blazers Their ratings, their local TV ratings have fallen off a cliff, down 49%. We'll ask a media expert to lay it out for us coming up top of the hour. We're going to play some Punch It audio here. Big splash coming up top of the hour. We're going to get a visit from a media expert. Our guest, Patrick Crakes, is a media consultant. We're going to ask him about a few things. 
among those things that we're talking about uh, are going to be the landscape of the college football playoff as it pertains to media rights. What Washington State and Oregon State could do with their football games. They have 13 football games. I talked with Kirk Schultz, the president of Washington State today, says that they're uh, zeroing in on a plan there. They're trying to balance exposure and revenue. Do they want more money and less exposure or less exposure, more money, more exposure, less money? Like, what's the right balance for Oregon State and Washington State? I frankly think that what you're going to end up seeing is you're going to end up seeing uh, the Oregon-Oregon State game probably sold off to a bigger media entity like ESPN or ABC. The Texas Tech-Washington State game, same. And then I think you're going to see some of the other games kind of go all a cart in different directions. So what's that right balance uh, as it pertains to those games? I'll ask Patrick Craig's that coming up, plus the Blazers' woes. Blazers' local TV ratings on route down 49%. Worst decline in the league. Like, worst performance by any NBA team as it pertains to the decline year-over-year numbers. Blazers have a problem. Now, is it Root? Are they the problem? Probably some of it. Is it that the Blazers lost Damian Lillard? That's some of it. Also, though, it's probably that the Blazers aren't very good this year. So we'll talk to Patrick Crakes about that coming up. Let's play some Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Brian Grubb is the new offensive coordinator of the Seattle Seahawks and the old offensive coordinator at the University of Washington. He had a great run at Washington. Can he keep it going in the NFL? Here's Ryan Grubb on Seattle Sports Radio. Punch it. Yeah, I think we had three pretty good receivers at Washington, and we got three pretty good ones here. So uh, it, it certainly starts there with the weapons that you have at your disposal. and We had two really good young tackles and obviously experienced quarterback room. So I think we we do a great job being ready to run anything, honestly. And you gotta you gotta get good at stuff too, right? You can't be an inch deep and a mile wide, of course. But I think that our offense, you know, provides a lot of answers in the run game. It's gonna be interesting to see that transition, college game, pro game. Probably more similarities with play calling and other things than you know maybe at any other time in college football in the NFL. Just see so much crossover, so much blend. I think it's why you can see a lot of college coordinators having success in the NFL, and you're going to see a couple of them this season, including Grubb. I also think it's a good time for him to get out, and I don't think going to Alabama was necessarily going to be the best move career-wise for Ryan Grubb. He seemed to like Seattle, seemed to like his family there and the lifestyle he had there. Also, no no Michael Penix Jr. on the college side. Just a nice, fresh opportunity for a guy who has a reputation as a great play caller. Good hire, too. Because Mike McDonald, the new head coach in Seattle, he's a defensive guy. So this is akin to uh, finding some uh, yang for the yang, so to speak, and uh, getting some balance in the in the room when you talk about the Seahawks' offensive and defensive operations. Dodgers manager was on the Jim Rome show, Dave Roberts. Dodgers won the World Series in 2020. 
Roberts has a loaded team this year, including Shohei Otani. Punch it. We've lost six straight playoff games. Um, not to kind of add that burden to the new guys that have come, but the Dodgers in general, we haven't done anything in a few years. We haven't won since 2020. Um, so certainly talent uh, doesn't win a World Series. So I think that for us, you know, you take the talent. Shohei didn't come. Yoshinobu didn't come here. Teoscar, you know, to, to not win a championship. So uh, obviously ownership went out and did their part. So we got to go out there and win the last game. Got to go out and win the last game. Dodgers have been underwhelming. Roberts has an interesting job now with a locker room that you know includes a new superstar, plenty of pitching. He has all, he has all the ingredients. He has everything he needs to win. And the Dodgers with their payroll, I was looking at the payrolls of Major League Baseball teams. It's kind of gross what you see happening in Major League Baseball with you know the there's no revenue sharing, there's no hard salary cap, and you've got you know let's let's say at the top you have teams that are spending three hundred million dollars plus. New York Mets at the front of the line. And then at the bottom, you've got the Oakland A's spending $40 million. It's just kind of a, it's a bad situation. All right, coming up in hour two, we're going to visit with Patrick Crakes. We're going to visit also with, uh, with uh, uh, later in the program, an expert on high school and college recruiting. We're going to be talking to Max Torres, who's been on the show before. Uh, we got more audio, of course, to share uh, coming up in hour two. You got the bald face truth statewide. I appreciate that you're here. Patrick Craig's coming up, our media expert. Going to talk to him about a whole bunch of different things in and around uh, what is going on with uh, with uh, college football and the NFL and certainly the bundle uh, that is now going to be happening between Disney and, and uh, Warner Brothers and Fox. All of that coming up next. Our next guest is an expert on programming, on strategy, on television, on digital media, media strategy. Like, we've all become experts, I think, in the last year and a half, or so-called experts on media rights. But we're experts in the same way that, like, we're all experts when it comes to curling in the Olympics. Right? We never, we haven't worked in it. We haven't lived it. We haven't competed in it. This guy has Patrick Crakes. He's terrific on all this stuff. Knows what he's talking about. Knows what he's doing. Consults with multiple entities. Crakes Media. Former U.S. Army veteran. Patrick Craig's joining us now. Thank you for your service, by the way, Patrick. Uh, you're welcome, John. I appreciate it. Country always gave me back 10x what I put into it, so I'm grateful for the country. What made you join the United States Army? Let's start there, and then we'll jump into the uh, the media stuff. Well, I come from a long, um, a long military family. A tradition on both sides of the family uh, actually stretches back to the Revolutionary War. Um, so um, at 17, I, I graduated high school very, very young. Um, my senior year, I was a typical athlete making okay grades. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my father, who was a full colonel in the Air Force Reserves at the time, um, wasn't really having a lot of that. So he he suggested joining the Army as an enlisted man. And all my ancestors, all my immediate family, my grandfathers, my great-grandfathers, all officers, um, that really appealed to me, actually. And, and so I ended up uh, in the Army. I ended up in the 82nd Airborne Division. 
Um, and uh, that was really great for me because it was like an extension of playing high school athletics in many ways. Um, I, I think basic training, I was really prepared for it because I had gone through so many August football practices. And um, I came out of there three three years later, and I kind of knew what I wanted to do, and I went off to college. And then um, I went uh, out to California, got a job in the studio mailroom at Fox after a year of trying, and started my media career. I also went back to officer candidate school eventually and got my reserve commission. So I did I did get that squared away. So that's kind of why I ended up there. And it turned out being a great great decision for me because it let me uh, mature a little bit and uh, just let me just kind of be right for a while, right, and breathe. Let it breathe, as they say. John. I love that. Patrick Crakes is with us, expert in media, consultant, media executive. Um, give me an idea. Let's start here with the Disney, Fox, Warner Brothers bundle that was floated out there. How, what it, what is it going to look like? What what was your reaction when you saw that? Well, I wasn't I wasn't very surprised. I but jokingly calling it the Ghidra bundle um, after the Japanese monster, um, because it really is. Um, it, it I think we lost Patrick there. We're going to grab him back here. We're going to put him on hold, and uh, we'll grab him there. I, I didn't know, Stephen. I, I thought it was me. I thought I had dropped off. So it looks like he has dropped off or his line has dropped off. So we'll try to get him back there. And uh, Patrick Crakes, the media expert there. When that happens, get in my ear a little bit, Stephen, or just note because I thought it was on my end. <laughs> I was checking my headset. Like, did my headset pull out or whatnot? But uh, sometimes that happens, technology and uh, phone lines, of course. Uh, Patrick Crakes, I love what he had to say there, too, about his experience in the military. I'm always curious and always want to ask people kind of how they felt, how they found the military. And from his standpoint, it looked like it was a positive association from generations of his family. So that's all good stuff, of course. And uh, Patrick on the East Coast joining us on a phone line. Uh, we're going to grab him back. I think we've got him back just about now, but uh, his... Uh, his phone line has dropped out, and uh, I'm also going to send him a note to, telling him the wonders of technology. Um, I also think um, it's – I want to ask him about that Warner Brothers Disney bundle. I want to ask him about the Oregon State and Washington State quest to put their football games together. I think it's interesting. And this Blazers thing kind of blew up yesterday on social media with, um, with uh, you know, the – the Blazers' media numbers not looking good. Their local TV numbers are terrible, and I want to know how that is going to impact the franchise or what they should be thinking about. All right, we got Michael back. Michael, I don't know what happened there. We lost you, but give me an idea. Um, excuse me, Patrick. Uh, give me an idea. When you're talking about the uh, bundle, we lost you right around uh, you know, when you started to go off on that. Yeah, so look, um, the truth of the matter is is that um, the old pay TV bundle is atrophying, but it still pays all the bills. And the new streaming system, um, um, which everybody thought was going to kind of replace it, isn't replacing it. It's, it's, it's really kind of economically really, really um, kind of ruinous in some ways. Uh, and so um, in September, we had a reset of the terms of negotiation between the distributor, a big tribute, distributor charter, which is Spectrum which is in, in the Pacific Northwest, and Disney. And it was kind of recognition of, of, of that kind of objective truth, right, that everybody's going to have to stay together somehow, and that, that this atrophying pay TV bundle that pays all the bills 
uh, everybody's got to work together to kind of try to preserve those economics while they figure out streaming. And then we come to today, right, where um, for a while the whole zeitgeist in the business was, look, you want to own all your content, you want to go direct to consumer, you want to uh, cut out, quote, the middleman, uh, you want to do it yourself. But that's all been so really unprofitable because it doesn't scale. There's no pricing power. Remember in the old bundle, you bought the stuff you wanted, but you also took a bunch of stuff you didn't want. And that's a lot like bundling at McDonald's and bundling for your insurance and bundling for everything. It all works like that, right? You take some stuff you don't want, or you take more of something you don't want. Doing it on your own eliminates that. So what's basically happened with Disney and Fox and um Warner Brothers is that they decided to start trying to figure out how to rebundle on the digital side. The problem for it is, John, is the old bundle was so great that um, you know it had everything in it. This bundle was a, a great idea and probably a good first start of figuring out what bundling will look like on the digital side, but um, it's uh, it doesn't have everything, and that's a problem when it comes to sports because people tend to be college football fans, not a type of college football or a conference, right? Maybe a conference fan, but you know, think about a Saturday morning where everything's in one place. Um, people tend to be general market fans. They want all the sports. So this is a great first step. I wasn't surprised by it, but at the same time, it's just kind of a, you know, just like a, it's a rest stop on a mile marker on a road that uh, we've got some more, more miles to travel. Help us out with the Blazers' woes. The NBA releases, or excuse me, Sports Business Journal took a look at the NBA local television ratings year over year. Blazers are down 49%. Some of that is Root. Root is, that Root deal's been hard for fans. Not everyone can get it. Some of it is the product's not good. Damian Lillard's gone. Team's got 15 wins. Um, You know, what would you say to the Blazers as they think about their television local TV deal moving forward and, and, you know, we see a team like the Suns or the Utah Jazz looking at free over-the-air programming on their local um, or their local market. What's the trend yeah. there, and what would you say to the Blazers, Patrick? Well, I think um, when we talk about the pay TV bundle breaking down and needing new forms of bundles on the digital side, uh, the, the RSNs are kind of great examples because uh, they only exist because of, of, of what I call established pay TV bundles. Prior to 20. Prior to 2000, not every local game in every market for the three RSN leagues, MLB, NHL, and, and the NBA, were available for everybody. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until 2000. Most of your sports were completely available inside a pay TV bundle. Everybody's gotten used to that, but that's not what the historical norm was. So these RSNs came into existence because of bundling. Um, they were important to a small uh, but but very, very passionate fan base, and they were reason, top three reason to have a pay TV bundle for some important customers. And so um, everybody from Fox to Comcast began to create RSNs and launch them, and they were very valuable for a while. Um, when I left Fox, the RSN business was at a, what we call 50% of B to Dom margin. That's unheard of enormously profitable, throwing off about $2 billion in cash every year. Uh, that's not what's going on today. These margins have gone down to 15% because the number of subscribers has gone down, even though the pricing for the channel has gone up. And um, the, the problem is, is that all the three RSN leagues depend heavily on the local media rights that are generated totally by these regional sports networks. And as I said earlier, there's no peer elected streaming. No streaming DTC product for the Blazers is going to replace uh, or probably even come close to replacing what they get from Root Sports. So 
the Blazers are kind of in a bit of a pickle, as are all the other teams, right? And we see it with the Diamond Sports bankruptcy, where the rights fees are being negotiated down. Um, and that has a strategic implication and problem in that all these teams have their budgets set. You know, for some local teams, um, like the Dodgers or the Yankees, they're going to figure all of this out, and they're going to be fine. For others, like the Kansas City Royals or, 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 or the Portland Trailblazers, you know, in some cases these local rights are – 20% of their of their revenue. They're very very important. I think when it comes to baseball, which is, you know, uh, you know, they're the most valuable RSN because they have those inventory in games. I think, you know, of the 12.5 billion dollars baseball makes, local media is 2.5 billion of that. And probably a significant portion of that, 50% of it's threatened because of cord cutting and not being able to figure out this balance between letting everybody see you and getting paid what you were supposed to be pay, getting paid, right? So there's going to be a period of adjustment. What I would suggest for the Blazers is they try to avoid what the Suns and the Jazz and others are going through because while um, you know they're on a broadcast affiliate, the devil's in the details with broadcast affiliates these days, the signal goes out to the entire market, John, but this isn't 1995. The truth of the matter is there's about um, – 120-some-odd million or you know, uh, uh, TV homes in the United States, and 30 million-plus of them are what we call broadband-only homes. They, they uh, have no ability to receive or don't have broadcast signal, and they have, do not have a traditional pay TV bundle, whether one that comes from a cable in the household or a DBS satellite or a digital one like a Hulu Live or something like that. Those folks are out of the system, and broadcast doesn't reach them. So the effective reach of broadcast is still greater than traditional pay TV, probably by about 10 million homes, but it's, 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 not, it's, not, it's going down and it's never been as effective. So when you go from a pay TV channel like your RSN to a broadcast network, you're not reaching the entire DMA, not even close. And you're still dependent upon pay TV bundles to deliver your signal because most viewing to broadcast channels, even though it is available over the air, still comes from pay TV bundles. And third, you're not going to get paid. All right. So, um, you know, you know it's, 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 it's a real problem. So my advice to them is to try to avoid that as best as possible. The real solution is probably rights fees have to be renegotiated in some way, John. Either you add term or you figure out a way to reduce them, and you're probably going to have to take some kind of tiering. The question is, what does the tier look like you go to? And I go back to that Charter Disney deal. Charter has rejiggered their, quote, sports tier. Um, and um, now it sits there with the league channels and some other things. It's more value. They changed the pricing on it. That's what I talk about, like, the three-headed monster is kind of a – these are all mile markers on a road that's very, you know, to a destination we can't really kind of figure out. But it, it does involve one thing, adjustments in costs to reflect the reduction in revenue from kind of the utility-like elimination of the pay TV bundle for something that looks more marketplace competitive – which is going to impact rights fees in some way, unevenly, for all the sports leagues. Get, help me out with this, because, you know, when I think about this, Patrick, I am thinking about it, I'm coming at it as a media member and a fan. And I feel like there are a lot of young sports fans who have not regularly seen the Trailblazers on television because for the last 10 to 15 years, their local TV package has been a mess. They have not been available regularly to people over the air. Um, they had a Comcast issue with it not being available everywhere. Now they have a root issue where they've placed it on the premium tier and it's not available to everybody and the team's not very good, so there's not a bunch of motivation for people to buy that tier. What is the impact 
long term when you don't connect regularly with your fan base? Um, well, I, I think I think it's a problem. I mean, and I think everybody understands it. Uh, that's why reach is still important. That's why you you know now that everyone understands that if you do go behind a, some kind of increment, you know, some kind of streaming payroll, you really in, you really interrupt reach. And the pay TV bundle was really great for reach because it got into ninety plus percent of all U.S. TV homes. I mean, that's. I tried to find for a client an example of a business that was as good as the pay TV bundle that was used by everybody, and I came up with Standard Oil, a hundred you know a hundred years ago. Um, it was really ambiguous, and everybody got that, and it was a ton of reach. Um, and you do need it to develop um, you know brand positioning and sell tickets and worry about all the other things a team has to do besides their media. Um, the, the challenge is, is that reach is becoming more complicated uh, due to the fractionalization of media distribution. As I talked about, broadcasts theoretically can reach everyone, but it doesn't because a certain percentage of people have just opted out of being available for it. So how you balance all of this is really important. It's why direct-to-consumer, you know, um, saying that uh, the future is the, the Portland Trailblazers going direct-to-consumer uh, you know, that's going to take down their reach significantly. Um, and and you have to balance any kind of economics you might get from that, which we've learned are harder to get, uh, with, with that loss in reach. So it's it, it looks a lot like a hybrid, I think. Yeah. John, we're in this – the big problem is we're in this transition phase where – um, on a national level, you kind of see what the what the media networks are doing. They're they're building digital platforms that are complementary to the pay TV the best they can, and they're acquiring content with the right to put it across all the platforms. And they're moving dials around. That's making things harder to find. It's making things more expensive, and it's forcing consumers to make choice. And that's disrupting everything, as we kind of talked about a little earlier. But I think it's the future, right? I think what the future looks like, John, um, is is you're going to cost more to get the content you want, but you're going to have more choice. But because you're going to have more choice, you're not going to get everything. Right. And, and I think how leagues, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm thinking about it like from a Blazers standpoint. How are they going to create diehard fans if there's a generation of kids who have never seen them play? And and I think a lot. If you went to the season ticket holders in the arena right now, you would find people who either grew up going to the games or saw the team and really feel connected to the team. And you know, this is my team. I'm from Portland. I watched this. I grew up with the Clyde Drexler era. I grew up with you know, and Brandon Roy, Lamarcus Aldridge were playing. And and but now I think we have a generation of kids who are like, I haven't seen a game. I and I wonder how that you know, or is it going to be like horse racing where one day there's nobody at the track? And, you know, you, and, but we have a huge demand because there's all this wagering demand. Like One day are we going to see arenas that teams are okay having them half full or third full because they're just, they're getting all that digital money. Yeah, I, I just, I just, I think the problem is, is that they're not going to be okay with it, John, because the digital money isn't what folks think it is. Yeah. Right. If you look at the digital economics, everybody thinks Amazon or Google, but think about how Google makes their money. 90% of it all still comes from search. Um, and they have a near monopoly on it. On the digital side, if you don't have a near monopoly of something that allows you to scale, you kind of, most of the businesses, you know, the, the consumer does really well with it. Uber's a fantastic service. It took them nine years to post any kind of profit. And in the process, they lost $44 billion. 
if you think about it, you know, Disney Plus is a great service, but um, especially if you bundle it. But over the past two and a half years, it's lost nearly $3 billion. Um, great service. People who have it like it, uh, but you can't make money on it. So, the, you know, look, the solution is to go forward is some kind of new definition of reach. And, and I think that um, when you look at the experiential economy, which was disintermediated heavily by COVID, obviously, right? Things like live events still matter a lot. And it's the experience, though. I ran the consumer research group when I was at Fox for 20 years. And I can tell you that the experience inside the stadiums and ballparks matters an awful lot in building fans. And going back to the idea that everything was on TV prior to 2000, it really wasn't. So fans were developed, John. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to start taking a different approach because some of the things that everyone took for granted, which was everyone sees me, is going away and making it easier for the consumer to find the games when they are on somewhere. Like we talked about a mix, maybe some of it's broadcast, maybe some of it's pay TV, maybe some of it's streaming. Right. Um, But it's not everything in an easy place like that old pay TV bundle, one bill, turn it on. Everything's there. Start at kind of noon, which you for a lot of guys was ESPN and work around the clock. Right. That's over. But you, We're going to have to relearn on the sports side um, how to manage for that. Um, And and part of that process is going to be expensive, which is why it's putting all this pressure on the system economically. Um, And don't look for Amazon and Apple to bail people out. Um, They're not doing that, and I don't think they are going to do it because they themselves, regardless of how much money they spend, I mean, they're experimenting. Amazon spends tens of billions of dollars experimenting all the time. Just ask Bill Gates about his health insurance initiative with them. Patrick Craig's with us, media executive, consultant. Patrick, let me ask you before I cut you loose. Oregon State and Washington State have 13 football games, home games, that they are shopping around currently. They, they're telling me that they're talking to a number of partners and they're really weighing exposure versus revenue. Uh, and Could they sell them all a cart? Could they sell them to one entity? Um, you know, Oregon State, for example, has got Oregon at home. That's a high-profile game. They have a game against Purdue that's not bad. Um, Washington State's got a Texas Tech game at home. What would you advise Oregon State and Washington State to do with those 13 football games? Well, I think that they probably need to coordinate a couple different packages. Um, The ones with the highest national appeal should go in one package, right, and should get national distribution. And then they should kind of have a B package and a C package if they can make it work right. Try to sell the B and C together, but be prepared to just say, look, we want this for our A package, which are these couple of national profile games, and by by we want, I mean distribution balance with economics. And I I know Bob has told you he says uh, uh, distribution. He's exactly right because he usually is. Well, he almost always is. Uh, And um, and, um, uh, so it's distribution. The economics will flow from that as well. When it comes to the B and C packages, I mean, it's going to be a negotiation. I think that it's going to be hard with the broadcast television networks to get the kind of distribution they may want, um, because one of the reasons why the Pac-12 got in kind of the trouble it got after the realignment of SC and UCLA was that the shelf space was getting pretty tough on the high-reach platforms, right? So one of the good things that has happened is the station groups that were created to take advantage of pay TV bundle retransmission fees, um, you know, are in getting involved in distributing sports. And I think that probably there's some opportunities with them there to go with a station group 
um, who, who like a like a Nexstar with CW, which is owned by Nexstar, has a bunch of sports. They have ACC package. They're going to be doing Xfinity races from NASCAR next year or yeah, in 2025. You know, there's there's an opportunity with them or Scripps or some of the other large station groups to get broadcast television exposure, which is mostly pay TV, but also outside of it, right? And um, and and put these games on the best platforms they can for reach. And, and work out an economic deal, John, that probably involves some kind of revenue sharing or something like that. But try to stay relevant by being available. And then they're going to have to kind of do what everybody else is, is, uh, is read and react, I guess, to how the marketplace develops. Because we obviously have a, a few more things to go through before we even, even, we even know what the college football playoffs going to look like. Even though I'm pretty sure it's going to be completely controlled by ESPN, it's the nature of the terms of that that matter, which are happening this week. I love all of this. It's way in the weeds, but we uh, we love being in the weeds talking about this stuff. Patrick Crakes, thank you. We'll get you back on. I appreciate you bearing with us, and thank you for your grace. Absolutely, John. Uh, you guys have a good evening. Thanks for having me. There he is from the East Coast, media consultant. We're going to talk about the Blazers TV deal. So I need some feedback and some help from you as an audience member. Blazers local ratings down 49%. Tell me why you're not watching. Is it because it's en route and it's uh, because on Xfinity it's a higher tier package, you got to pay for it, and you don't think it's worth it? Is it because you struggle to find it? Is it because Damian Lillard's gone? Is it because the team's not very good? Is it because you're just over the Blazers? Tell me what it's about for you if you're not watching or if you are. 503-417-7575. Why are the Blazers ratings down 49%? You help me out here. I feel like today's show has been a little clunky. I don't know if you've picked up on it as a listener, and I'm not going to blame uh, President's Day and all the presidents we celebrated yesterday. I just feel like it's been a little clunky. Hour one, I had a little glitch because in hour one, segment three, I started to do something and I took too long. We didn't get all the punch and audio done. And then we had the guest on to start the 4 o'clock hour. I loved the guest. I thought he was great. This is not his fault. I think I didn't do a good job of really being specific and asking him some questions. I think he got a little in the weeds. I don't know if, if you were following everything he was following, but, man, it was inside, inside, inside baseball on meteorites. And I think it was fascinating, probably fascinating for a lot of you. And probably some of you going, I don't know what I'm listening to, as uh, Patrick Crakes was talking about it. But um, that's on me. I got to be better. Anna's in the studio. I'm going to try to be better here. Okay? I say why not blame the presidents? <laughs> Do you know who the shortest president in history was? Stephen? Do you know? Anna, do you know? Shortest U.S. president by height in history might surprise you. I, Abraham Lincoln's the tallest. Go on, Stephen. I don't know. I I can Google it really quickly, but no, I, don't Google okay, it. I well, think no, it's no. Uh, we just I I think it's James Madison. It is right? James Madison. This feels recent. That well we done. Discussed this. The girls were talking about it at breakfast this yeah. morning. Seven year old, nine year old. Yeah, gaking out on it literally. S- James Madison, five foot four. Wow. Yeah. Shortest president in history by two inches. Yeah. Like that. Yep. Abraham Lincoln, six four, posting that guy up. James Madison. Um, there, I'm going to give presidential facts throughout the show. But in the meantime, I want to get to... Uh, 
You know President's Day is over. Yeah, but I missed it. Uh, we weren't on air. <laughs> okay. So. We're going to make up for it today. President's Day. And by the way, some states, Anna, yes. only celebrate George Washington's birthday as President's Day. Others are more inclusive, saying we're celebrating all the presidents. Huh. Like them or love them, hate them, whatever. You're, we're going to celebrate them all. Like Virginia, where he was born. Yeah. Right? And a couple other states. I think New York is one of those as well that says mm. it's Washington's birthday. How about that? Not President's Day. I told the girls on the way to school something I heard about presidents. Supposedly, Abraham Lincoln it like comes up in your conversation or just your mind space at some point every day. Whether it's you oh, see wow. him on a $5 bill. Is he on the $5 bill? And then... <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think he is. Um, or you see him on the penny. I know he's on the penny. <laughs> You're here for a history lesson, listener. I yeah. know you are. Yeah, yeah, it is. He is on the five. Okay. I was thinking Jefferson. Okay. Sorry, my bad. Okay. Um, and, but like whether whether it's the civil rights, uh, you know, the abolishment of slavery, shows the civil many, war. Shows you how many $5 bills I've been looking at lately. Lincoln Memorial. Supposedly... That dude comes up in your conscience almost on a daily basis. Interesting. If you pay attention That's, to it, I could have done without that being planted in my head because now I'm you're going welcome. To, I'm going to think about him every day. All right, now this is what I want to talk about here. <laughs> okay. Okay. Can I get this back on the rails? Blazers TV ratings, Sports Business Journal came out, showed the TV ratings for all the NBA teams. By the way, um, like 17 of the teams' ratings are up. They only measured 27 of them because Nielsen ratings are only available for 27 markets. Okay. So um, 17 of the 27 up. Some of them up significantly, like the Minnesota Timberwolves, Phoenix Suns, uh, Denver Nuggets. That makes sense. Blazers ratings had the worst decline, the steepest decline of any NBA team, down 49% year over year. I'm asking people to call in and say why, and a whole bunch of people have called in to say why. We're going to put them on air now. But I want you to think, Anna, from a media standpoint, why aren't people watching the Blazers? Is it the Root TV deal? Too hard to follow them. Is it Damian Lillard's gone? Is it um, is it that uh, the product's just not good? It's a 15-win team. Is it some exhaustion with the Blazers? Is it something else? Only you out there listening to the show can answer. So there's no wrong answer. Why aren't you watching the Blazers locally is the question. 503 417 7575. Bruce in Portland, lead us off, Bruce. Uh, first of all, thanks for all those useful facts on presidents, but I'll log in my useful <laughs> fact file and use somewhere sometime. But uh, mm-hmm. hey, um, uh, Bruce Sports, because they got rid of right before the season starts, as you well know, you know, Comcast comes out with the announcement oh, Bruce is no longer part of our package. You know, you can get it for uh, $6.99 extra per month. And it's like, okay, well, that's not going to happen. And the fact that, you know, they haven't been very good doesn't inspire anybody to go out now to purchase that package. You know, if they would have been, if they were a contender or something this year, I bet, I'm sure viewership would be better. But, uh, it, that, that interview definitely got into the weeds. You know, I was able to follow yes. about half of it. I'm a numbers guy, you know, and it's like, holy smokes, you know, have to go back and listen to that again. I don't know why the Blazers or some of these other sports franchises don't do what the Timbers did last year, you know, when MLS went to Apple TV and the Timbers offered every season ticket holder a one-year subscription and then four guest invites. So you, I, as a season ticket holder, could invite four of my friends to also subscribe and watch the Timbers mm-hmm. last year for free. 
um, nice. a whole year of it, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, obviously, they're going to start charging again this year, but uh, I, uh, it's unfortunate. I think pay-per-view is the future. Um, and they, like that guy said, you got to figure out how to balance viewership with revenue and, and access. It's, it's going to be it's, – it's the future, so it's here yeah. to stay, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, some teams like the Phoenix Suns, because they're regional sports network and the Utah Jazz, because their regional sports network had problems – um, they have decided, hey, we're going to just go free over the air. We're going to go locally free over the air. We're going to be widely available. We're going to connect with people. I hope the Blazers go in that direction because I do think it was dirty for Root Sports right before the season to be all of a sudden like, hey, this is going into a higher-tier package, and you're going to have to upgrade if you want to see the Blazers. They did it right before the – two days before the season. Dirty. Dirty. And that turns some people off, I'm sure. Eric's in Klamath Falls, listening on 9.60 a.m. Eric, welcome. Thanks, John. First time, long time. And Bruce hit the nail on the head. Basically, nobody wants to pay that much money for what is sadly a mediocre Portland Trailblazers team this year. I think if they did go the Phoenix Suns route with the young guys, Simons, Sharp, Scoot Henderson, they'd be exciting to watch. That viewership would go way up. But, you know, the sports deal, all the hoops you got to jump through to watch Trailblazers basketball. It's just not worth it right now outside of nationally televised games. Yeah, not worth the, the, the 20 bucks extra or whatever they're charging for the package. It's a great point. Um, I think the product sucks, too. It's not a great product. It stinks. I shouldn't say sucks because that's too harsh. It stinks. It's not the fault of the players on the roster. It's not the fault, really, of the GM. I think the Blazers, this roster is not very good. And I think it was a hand that was dealt to Joe Cronin. It was a hand that was dealt to Chauncey Billups. And I think putting it on route, making it more expensive at the same time where the product is diminishing, it's like saying, McDonald's saying, hey, we're going to raise the price of the burger. We're going to make you have to work harder to get it. And by the way, it's not going to be as good. And I think a lot of people would be like, yeah, I'm okay, I'm, I'm out, I'm going somewhere else. And I think that's kind of what's happening. 503-417-7575. You tell me, why aren't you watching the Blazers? Bob is in Milwaukee. Bob, go ahead. Hey, John. I think it's a lot of what the other you guys have mentioned with the Root Sports uh, pricing going up and the Blazers not being any good. But I think it's also we don't have an invested owner. We have a woman who just wants to be received there on this cash cow and feed her pockets. So she doesn't. Inv- uh, we don't have an owner who invests in making the Blazers what they used to be under Paul Allen. Love that. That's you want nice. to see an owner who's vested. An owner's got some skin in the game. Jody Allen, it doesn't matter if the Blazers, the caller's right, Like if it doesn't matter if the Blazers lose money or make money, Jody Allen doesn't own the team. She's just here as a trustee collecting a management fee, some estimate to be around $20 million a year, to manage her brother's estate. Includes the Seahawks, includes the Blazers. Doesn't matter if these teams win or lose or make money or lose money. Um, I do think they're a little rudderless, and I think that is a problem. Sean is in Sandy, Oregon. Sean, go ahead. Weigh in. Hey, John. uh, A lot of people have cut cords. Uh, And I, I was always watching, just a few years ago, we were watching Blazers on NBC. You know, we didn't have to pay for anything. Most of the games were on free television. Uh, then they went to Root, and then now you gotta uh, you gotta uh, stream it. 
whatever you do. And they just made it hard. And the economy is terrible. You know, the economy is terrible. Everyone's saving money. Look at gas prices, everything else. We're not paying for watch sports no more. Not too many people want to do that. you got to be pretty hardcore. I'd rather just listen on the radio and, and uh, read in the newspaper, just uh, look online. I look up the references. I look at the numbers on that. I'll just listen on the radio, brother. Have a great yeah, day. Appreciate that. Let's kick this around. I worry that there are a generation, there's a generation of fans who are going to grow up saying, I never really saw the team play, and they're going to be less connected. Like, I hear from people who are Blazer fans through and through who said, I, w- I watched this team regularly in 1977, 78, 76. I, I fell in love. I hear people say, I watched this team in the 80s and the 90s. I fell in love. I hear people say, I got to see Brandon Roy's rookie season, LaMarcus Aldridge, 2007. I fell in love. I wonder if there are going to be kids who go, I really didn't get to see him play, but gosh, I watched a lot of the national broadcasts, and I saw the Suns play and the Lakers play a lot, and that's why I'm a Suns fan or a Lakers fan. I don't know. Am I in left field here? Steven, you watch the games. You're a diehard. Uh, yes, I do. The funny part about that is is at the studio, we have Root Sports, but a lot of times they get put on Root Sports Plus because the Kraken are on, and I have no idea what channel that is. I have to Google it every single time I try to turn to that channel. Uh, so that is problem one. But I, but I do think the biggest problem, John, is the fact that they aren't good because this team, even though they aren't good this year and you can kind of fudge the numbers of saying what the attendance is, they're still 14th in the NBA in attendance, according to you know certain numbers you look at. So I do think that this market supports the Blazers no matter what. There's always going to be a baseline of people that are going to support this, and there's a lot of but, people but I think do. But do your eyes tell you they're, like, they're reporting 18,000 fans at the arena? You've been to the arena. Are you looking around and seeing a mostly full arena? Uh, no, it's definitely not that. But I do think it's full. There's certain nights where it's fuller than I think it would be. It's for a team that is this bad and not this good. And so I do think it's all about winning. I think if this team next season, if they start out the season well and they are a solid team and they're competing for the playoffs, Bonus Center is going to be packed again and people are going to be watching again. And I understand a lot of the uh, this kind of stuff that you know going against it, but – I do think as long as the Portland Trailblazers put out a winner, there's going to be a lot of people that support this team, and I think people will start watching it. I think that's the biggest reason. The Root Sports TV package doesn't help the fact that it's not on YouTube TV. Like, I used to have YouTube TV because the Blazers were on Comcast Sports then, and, that, and YouTube TV had that. Then they got rid of it and went to Root Sports. Well, YouTube TV doesn't have Root Sports, so we got rid of Root YouTube TV. Now I just have to stream the game, uh, quote, you know, maybe illegally, but maybe I do that, and that's what I do to usually watch the games. Yeah. So. Yep. You find a way. Yeah, you find a way. But I, I think it is the fact, it's a little bit of the root sports thing that you can't get it on YouTube TV because I think a lot of younger people have YouTube TV or they have you know one of those uh, st- streaming platform. And then I also think it's just the fact that they aren't very good. Like if they're good, people are going to find a way to get the Blazers and they'll pay a little extra money, I think, to watch on TV. I disagree with that because I feel like their success or lack thereof is only one factor. I think... What is wrong is that the Blazers organization has forgotten that their success is whether they have a relationship with their fans. I don't think there's any relationship with their fans. I think the fans feel, Mm. I know how I feel. I consider myself a fan of the Blazers, and I've never felt more disconnected to this team and to the people who are on it than I do right now. Why is that? Because I... 
uh, was it's a it's a combination of things. I am I feel disenfranchised by everything that's happened with the whole Jody Allen thing. I don't believe in them as, a, as an organization. With everything that I've known and read about how she operates, it's just not an entity that I feel good supporting and wanting you know to spend a bunch of money to go see the games in person or even like go through the effort of buying the service to watch them on television. And sure, yeah, if they were red hot, of course there would be a part of me that would be like, hey, we should really pay attention and, you know, check these games out and watch them because as a Portlander, I feel like it's almost an obligation. Like, I grew up in this city. If there's a professional team here, I want to in some way be supportive of it, but that's just not where I'm at. You, and I, uh, I was going to ask you, did you feel that way when they had Damian Lillard on the team? Because you say you feel disconnected. Were you connected when Dame was on the team? But I was Paul more was connected. I was more connected. Um, but yeah, I mean, that took a lot of the wind out of the sails for me. Um, I just think that it's ironic that social media is as prevalent as it is right now. And yet I don't feel like I really know these players at all. And yeah. it's the same advice that I give as a media coach to other sports teams that are, that are, you know, they ask, well, how do we get coverage? How do we get fans to our games? You have to let the fans know who these players are maybe a little bit outside of the basketball they're playing on the court like help me want to care about the people that are on this team and guess what i will ride and die with the team if i care about the people that are playing on it 503-417-7575 weigh in on the topic do you feel connected to the blazers why aren't you watching them blazers tv ratings locally down 49 percent why aren't you watching the Blazers? Do you not feel connected to them? Anna says she doesn't feel a connection to the team. Steven says the roster's just not very good. Others have said, hey, it's difficult to find the Blazers. This Root Sports thing was dirty. 503-417-7575. We're going to start in Lake Oswego, Oregon with Michael. Michael, Mike, welcome. John, thank you for having me on. Um, basically, my, my thing goes back to a year ago when Joe Cronin went went in front of the season ticket holders and said, we're going to build a team around Dame. And then we all renewed our season tickets. And then what happened in September, they traded Dame. And we, have, we, the season ticket holders, have had to sit through a lousy, lousy product. So quite honestly for me, uh, when I turned in my season t- I told them I was not going to renew. And I've been a season ticket holder going back to 1976-77 when they won the championship. Uh, <clears throat> I, 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 just, I, I just lost faith in the organization. I don't think that they care about being honest with us. And clearly over the last decade, they've not made any moves to try to make this team better. So for that reason, I, I, the, the arena has no atmosphere. And then they charge exorbitant prices when you're there for a lousy entertainment. I just got completely frustrated and said, that's enough. Yeah, I think think that's fair. And I think, you know, there was a change of tune with the Blazers after Cronin said, you know, it was this commitment about Damian Lillard. And then there was kind of this, uh, you know, building around Lillard commitment that shifted into something else. Cronin said this. Well... Building around Dame has always been the goal, all the way even through the draft. It was the difficult things that we ran into were 
finding the right deals. So, you know, in the previous two years, we drafted at seven, we drafted at three. You know, in the meantime, we were scouring the market looking for more win-now players. And what kept happening was those players just weren't available. So each time we just tried to weigh that, you know, in Shaden's draft, pick seven, what does that look like versus what's available in the market? And the answer was obvious, Shaden's better. And same thing happened this time. What does pick three look like versus the return in the market? And it wasn't close, had to go three. So it wasn't necessarily intentional. It was just doing what's best for this team. And we kept doing that and I could see why you know, Dame would look at it and say, well, this isn't a, a win now opportunity as much as, or at least as much of a win now opportunity as some other places. So from that regard, I mean, I understand his position and I respect it and um, it makes sense to me why he would look to go elsewhere. Yeah, and you know, it, it, it caused bad feelings with Blazer fans. That's part of what you think, I think, Anna, you're talking about the connection with fans. Uh, there's a fan, there's another, you know, Michael, calling in saying you know he felt lied to yeah it's it's there's no respect for the relationship with the fans i mean the the strongest most recent counterpoint to that was the oregon state women's basketball player who after the win over the weekend was being interviewed about to leo van olhoffen yes yeah thank you um and the, the what she said was not about herself not about the success that she had in the game, not about the ice-cold blood running in her veins as she sank a three with 1.1 second left to go to win the game. Her comments were about the arena, uh, Research Stadium, no, not Research Stadium, Gil, uh, Gil, Gil Coliseum, Coliseum yeah. being filled with people who were there to support the team. That is someone, that is a college student who understands that her success and that her team's success relies heavily on people being in that coliseum, supporting that team, making it so loud for the opposing team that they can't even hear what's going on and the impact that that has on the basketball players on the court as they, as they win that game. I want to take more calls. I want Blazer fans, if, if you, know, you want to weigh in, you want to be heard, that I do think part of the problem is that Blazer fans feel that they have not been heard by the franchise. I want you to feel heard here at 503-417-7575. I posted the screenshot of the ratings and pointed out that the Blazers are down 49%. I got employees of the Blazers who are in my mentions trying to defend the team, and I'm like literally slapping my forehead going, that's part of the problem is you're in my mentions trying to to defend this instead of, the franchise actually addressing the issues, which are a lack of connection, a bad product, and an inability to find the games en route. Trailblazers ownership has come up. The connection that the fan base does or doesn't have with the team has come up. Also, Root Sports, the bad product, the way Damian Lillard unfolded or his departure unfolded has all come up. A couple of uh, readers or listeners reaching out via email and on social media. One says, listening to this segment, the beginning of the end for me was when they let Terry Stotts go and the way Neil Olshay handled that. Coach who had been here 10 years got thrown under the bus. 
Nothing against Chauncey Billups, but he is not connected with the community the way Terry Stotts did. What is it for you? Blazer fans or former Blazer fans, I want to hear from you. At 503-417-7575. We're going to do the 5 at 5, but we're going to take a couple calls first. We'll go to Portland. Mike is in Portland. You're going to have the floor. You've been holding a while, Mike. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem. I just want to say I'm a lifelong Portlander. I was there in 77. We won. It's just, you know, they they need to sell this team. They've got the best acquire potentially in all of sports waiting in the wings. The trust mandates they sell this team. It's clear. They just they don't care about the product now. And until they sell it, I'm done. Yeah, I don't I think I don't think you're alone. And I and I've heard people say, Oh, I think they're trying to angle to move the team to Seattle. I've heard that floated out. And I might agree with you if I didn't know that Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, has talked with owners and talked and hinted at Seattle and Vegas being expansion locations. And as much as, you know, you might be fearful of the Blazers ending up in Seattle, I can tell you that the rest of the owners of the NBA teams are not going to let that happen because if you move the Blazers to Seattle, you lose a layup as it pertains to $3 billion in expansion fees. So you want Seattle and Vegas, with their arms open, $6 billion will be infused into the uh, NBA owners' pockets as those two teams become expansion franchises. And there's no way the rest of the league is going to be like, yeah, let Portland move to Seattle and then, you know, we'll go somewhere else. Uh, No, you've got Seattle and Vegas open arms. And as much as that may scare you as a Blazer fan, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think it's probably more likely that Jody Allen, the trustee of her brother's estate, I've done some reporting and writing about this, but Jody Allen is collecting a management fee for being the trustee. And that management fee on an estate that is $20 billion when it started off, including submarines and the yacht and the artwork, it was the largest art collection ever auctioned off, it was real estate parcels, as it starts to you know, go down, the two biggest assets ultimately end up being the Seattle Seahawks and the Portland Trailblazers, and you're probably talking about five or six billion dollars worth of, of uh, you know, of uh, equity in those teams, and you're talking about management fees that are like twenty million dollars a year on a state of that size. So Jody Allen gets nothing when the Blazers are sold. She gets nothing when the Seahawks are sold. She makes no money from either one of these teams. Her only incentive is to hold and hold and collect the annual management fee of $20 million because when she sells, she doesn't get anything. Is that why she has been reluctant? Is that why she's saying, eh, it's going to take 10 to 20 years to liquidate the estate? Is she mad that her brother didn't leave her enough? I don't know. I'd love to ask her that. Jake's in Northeast Portland. Jake, welcome to the conversation. Hey, John, I just, I, I got to go back to this is a very, very, very simple problem they have here. There's no access. I know so many Blazer fans that don't get to watch games. They don't have it in their budget. We've been on, as a society, we've been on this train for the last 20 years of unplugging and of cord cutting, and we've moved to this 
platform of not just being on TV, but being on streaming. And they have not done well with that. They didn't do well. They have a very bad history of giving us the product, the Blazers FO. The Comcast hostage situation just turned into the Toot Sports hostage crisis. They just need to give the product to the people. The fans will still watch. People will still watch if they can. Yeah. They, even though the product is bad, I think that we know that the real diehard Blazer fans, and I will defend them. I'll defend what they're doing as far as the rebuilding process. I believe in the rebuilding process they're doing right now. Um, I think it was the right move. I'm, I don't like the way we parted ways with Dane. It doesn't sit well in my stomach. But breakups are messy. That stuff happens. They just need to give the product to the people. That's it. Just make it easier to watch games. Yeah, and it, that's part of the issue. That's kind of what you were talking about. I'm Anna. nodding my head. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I, that's why, like, it's not as simple as they're not winning. Um, I think that Blazer fans are inc- <laughs> incredibly forgiving. I mean, come on. Look at what Blazers fans have been asked to, like, p- be put through. We have been yeah. through a lot with right. this team. Here's some evidence. Here's some hard evidence. Um, I'm looking at radio ratings for Blazer affiliate. Let's just pick a market, Eugene, Oregon. Uh-huh. Fox Sports Eugene has the play-by-play of the Portland Trail Blazers. The ratings during Blazers games are up. In Eugene. Why? Because you can't see the games on TV. And so some diehard Blazer fans are going, all right, I'm not going to pay extra for Root, but I'll listen on the radio. Are they fans are, are fans starving for the connection? <laughs> yes. And willing to go, I will paint the mental picture and listen to play-by-play, but I'm not going to pay the 20 bucks to watch them on Root. Yeah. That makes sense. Makes sense to me. Andrew's in Portland. Andrew, go ahead. Hey, John. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I agree with the, the caller, Mike, previously. I think it starts at the top. I think that, uh, you know, Jody Allen as an owner doesn't, doesn't, she doesn't have a drive. There's no, there's no incentive for the team to do well. I think culture is built from the very top, right? And setting those expectations and having someone that's business savvy and interested in having the connection with the fans, um, you know, and has run a big business in the past is going to see these kinds of errors that have been made in previous deals with TV and say we can't repeat that mistake, and we need to rebuild this thing, and, and there's no one at the top driving that. And until we have that, I think we're just we're seeing symptoms of that, whether it's you know the market or the coaching turnover or you know coaches and GMs throwing each other under the bus. Like All of that is pervasive because people at the top aren't setting the culture standard. And I think until that changes, you're just going to see a rinse and repeat of all these issues. Yeah, and it's a fair point. Like, you don't have one of my frustrations – with some of the general managers and coaches that have come into the market over the years was that they didn't understand the history of what had gone on here. And I know when Neil Olshay got here, he thought, you know, nothing had happened before Neil Olshay got here. Part of that is his personality. But I, it, I was like, we've been through this. When he tried to sell, when he fired Terry Stotts and tried to sell everybody on, this is a reload, not a rebuild. I was like, we've done this. We've done this a couple times. <laughs> we've risen. Yeah. We've risen again. The Blazers had six general managers in a 10-year span at yeah. one point. Like, Paul Allen was changing his GMs like he was changing his socks. <laughs> and every time a new GM showed up, they would 
say the same thing. And I was like, no, no, no. You need to go back and listen to what every GM said before you and study the history of the organization. You don't know what happened here. You don't know what people have been through. Sam's in Portland. Sam knows what people have been through. I do, John. And I think I said this like 10 months ago. I'm still in the same place. Until Jody Allen sells the team, it's it's like I can't get behind them. I mean, it's it's just not exciting. They're, what, 15 and 30? I think the most exciting thing and maybe some hope for Blazer fans is the draft. We'll probably be in good position to maybe get the first pick. But it's a then, bad draft, though, Sam. It's not a great draft. Well, there you go. Is it going to be another nightmare where we pick the wrong person in the draft again? They just need to sell the team so everybody can move on. And unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen for a long time. Yeah, I, I think Adam Silver. I, here's the other thing. Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, I've had a lot of people say, why doesn't he force a sale? Mm-hmm. You know, Jody yeah. Allen's got some skeletons in her closet. Like, she once had her bodyguards dress in Speedos and model them for her like if that were a male owner of an nba team who had done that with like the cheerleaders of the team or that would have been a big problem for the nba like there would have been outrage but you know and she had the uh draft bones and smuggling of bones issue like literally <laughs> skeletons in the closet of that old thing usda made uh, vulcan destroy 72 pounds of bones um anyway yeah, it's rich people problems, okay? You know, don't judge. It's just, just casual bone, yeah. bone problems. Yeah, put on a Speedo and smuggle those bones for me. Um, uh, By the way, Vulcan's attorneys deny that, but yeah, there are records of that, that it all happened. But she's a trustee, not an owner. So what do you do if you're Adam Silver? Like, you can't force a trustee to sell in the same way that you could come in and go, Donald Sterling, you're a creep, you gotta go. Mm. Like, I think there's a little bit of a, this is new ground for Adam Silver. And, he, and, of course, you know, he's close with Phil Knight. He would love Phil Knight to be an NBA owner. Do you imagine the NBA Board of Governors, like, they would have, Phil Knight's coming in the room. They would have, like, you know, Adam Silver pop out of a cake in the middle of that room. <laughs> it would be like, they would celebrate this because it would be like, value, added value. We're adding value to the league. And instead you have... Jody sitting on the baseline sometimes and looking disinterested in when she's there. It's not the same as her owning the Seahawks and having her friends in the luxury suite because she's a Seattle person who's likes that lifestyle. This blazer thing is not what she signed up for. I don't want to sound like I'm defending Jody Allen because I want her gone and I don't think that she has done a great job and it's too late at this point. Like I want to hear her speak, but at this point she can't say anything to mend this relationship because it's been she's been so quiet and MIA the entire time. There's nothing she can do. But had the Blazers got Victor Wimbanyama and they were one pin ping pong ball away, John, we would be talking about the roster. We wouldn't be talking about how bad Jody Allen is. We wouldn't be talking about any of that because there have been bad owners that have won championships in sports. Jeffrey Loria, Marlins, Dan Gilbert, Cleveland, uh, Marge Schott, your girl over in Cincinnati. They all won championships. They were bad owners. I really think if this roster was different, if they had Wimbanyama, we're talking about who fits next to him in the future? We're not talking about bad ownership. This is Blazer fan delusion 101. If Michael Jordan had been with the Blazers, it would be different. If Bill Walton's foot hadn't you know, broken, if Sam Bowie hadn't had shattered bones, weak bones, 
you're falling into that trap. But how and do you how do you explain partly, the owners that are bad owners that have won championships? Then the same thing could happen with Jody Allen if they had if she had the elite players. They just don't have those players. And yeah, you can blame Jody Allen for putting Joe Cronin in that spot, and he hasn't done a great job. But I still think it's all about the roster. If this team was winning, people are going to support it. And people are going to watch this team. But those owners you mentioned, they may have been bad human beings, or maybe they had flaws, or maybe you know, March Shot was a racist, and you know it. They may have had those issues, but they had something Jody didn't have. They had skin in the game. They had a stake in it. They had a vested interest in the roster being better, hiring a good GM, hiring the right coach. I don't think the Blazers have that. Like, she inherited this thing that is a trust, and she's running it, but it's not like she's going, you know what, I really want this team to win, and she's just a bad person or a, you know, a lousy owner, but she's also motivated. Like, sometimes the blind squirrel finds a nut. I don't even think she's looking for a nut. Like <laughs> that's, I, that's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it, she... This See, isn't her thing. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to say she's a good owner by any means. She's a bad yeah. owner and a bad person. It's like she's like, both. She's both like, of them. But I just, I just feel like we plan when the team isn't good. It's easy to blame the coach. It's easy to blame ownership. When really, in most sports, and I think basketball especially, it's about the talent that's on the court. Right. But I think there's X Y Z that le- leads you into that talent being on the court, and some of it is having the right people having an owner who is creating some accountability and expectation and, you know, is running a business. I don't think she's even running a business. Like, Stephen, this is like, let's just pretend you have a billionaire sibling who has a real fascination with hubcaps and creates a hubcap museum and gets hit by a bus and says, I'm, you know, I left you the hubcap museum, Stephen. You don't give a rip about the hubcaps. And you're just going, yeah, yeah, just let the thing run itself. Who cares? And all the hubcap enthusiasts are going, why is this museum falling off so far? It's because Steven's running it. It's his fault. He's a bad owner. It might just be that you don't care about hubcaps. You don't have a passion for it. That's true. I don't care about hubcaps. You are you are <laughs> right about that. I, I, I would run that business I'm into the saying. ground. No, you know? and, I, and I think it's all fair. I just I just think it's very easy to blame stuff that isn't the players. Because like, even though Anna said like you, she doesn't feel connected to the team, I still feel like there are connections with the roster whether scoot henderson's right. good or not like people love him because he's a trailblazer and they're always going to love him because he's a trailblazer they so want they to hate love him, him. Right. they want to love him but here's a here's a great example the suns were bad matt ishbia buys him what do they do they go out and they make some moves and try to get some players on the court you're right talent wins but kevin durant does not end up in phoenix if ishbia isn't going hey i'm willing to go all in we're going to go after this we're going to try to be good and look at there was interest and because the Suns fans who had been bad really in a dismal situation with bad ownership suddenly went hey this guy really wants to win I get behind that all right can we do the five at five at five sixteen is that too late <laughs> you gotta hurry this one Anna all right Anna I'm gonna give you can you pull this off can you pull off the five at five in five minutes. Uh, yeah, if you don't have much to say about the story, I got I got something to say, but let's she, see if you can do it. Back as you do. I could do All it right. in four minutes. Oh, here we go. <laughs> do that five. The five at five. Number one. Okay. Um, JJ Redick ripping Doc Rivers for quote always making excuses amid the Bucks' struggles. I don't know if you guys have talked about this already, but JJ Redick has been one of the more refreshing voices, I think in sports broadcasting and he's getting real he's talking about how it's been a trend for years how it's excuses 
Uh, we get it. Taking over a team in the middle of the season is hard, just like getting traded in the middle of the season is hard for a player, but it's always an excuse. There's never accountability with that guy. And, of course, he played for Rivers yeah. with the Clippers between 2013 and 2017. So I guess maybe his words carry a little extra weight. Always an excuse. I think they do carry weight. I like that Reddick's saying it. I find it kind of ironic that J.J. Reddick is holding Doc Rivers accountable over not holding his players accountable. There's a, you know, there's a riddle in there somewhere. Number two. Uh, probably worth mentioning, Kenny Smith doubling down on his comments, the Steph versus Sabrina thing. He's yeah. continuing to talk about it, saying it's much ado about nothing. He's saying most people who know basketball understood that he's talking about, you know, that it's he's advocating for her because basketball is muscle memory. And he practices from one range. She practices from another. Do you buy that? No. I think he said, basically, Sabrina, get back in the kitchen, put your apron on. And he's trying to, you know, tiptoe and dance around it. Fact of the matter is, she shot as well as the male regular three-point contestant shot. She was every bit as good as Damian Lillard and everybody else who competed in that competition. She lost to Steph Curry by a couple of shots. And I think it was a great moment. The NBA won. Steph Curry won, clearly. Sabrina won. The WNBA won. Kenny Smith took all that away by opening his mouth. It was an air ball by Kenny. Number three. Uh, breaking news. Kalen DeBoer posts the first ever tweet by an Alabama football coach. <laughs> a new era for the Crimson Love Tide. That. The tweet itself wasn't much. He was just congratulating members of the Alabama team who had been named Student Athletes of the Week. He was, quote, tweeting it, saying, great work, gentlemen. But people on Twitter uh, lost their minds. They were like, oh, wow, first ever that a sitting Alabama head football coach has written and posted a tweet. Nick Saban. <laughs> Think times have changed. Number four. Oh, four already. Ugly brawl breaks out uh, at a college basketball game. This was after the Texas Saw A&M uh, Commerce's win at Incarnate Word. Uh, the teams yeah. were actually shaking hands. Not clear what sparked the fight in the handshake line, but it involved multiple players from both squads throwing punches at each other. Coaches and players from each team tried to separate the people who were brawling, but the fracas, one of my favorite words, continued for more than a minute uh, as they all scuffled across the court. A young girl in the crowd was hurt as a result of what happened. I'm wondering if uh, this was like a debate over some biblical translation or something. Incarnate Word, you've got Catholic University, you've got private schools involved, a lot of punches. I watched this fight. Um, it was fascinating to watch on social media because it went on and on and on. And it was like a perfect storm of um, nobody there to break it up and also a lot of people fighting in different parts of the gym. <laughs> Number five. Okay, did we do it? Uh, let's end with Victor Wimbanyama. He is the newest ambassador for Louis Vuitton. Makes sense. They're French. He's French. Uh, NBA fashion has really taken on a whole new meaning with folks like Kyle Kuzma, Dwayne Wade, Russell Westbrook, and LeBron making bold statements with their pregame outfits and Wemby's uh, joining the high fashion campaign. He's built like a fashion model. 7'4". You know? Yeah, a lot of those models are alien-like. Yeah. I want to see him on a runway. He looks, he has that look. Yeah. 
Can he look, though, because all the fashion models, they look like they're pissed. You know, that nobody's ever smiling. Yeah. Can Wemby do that? You know? Sure. I've seen him smile a little too much. He, you know, needs, he looks to look pouty. The photo, okay, i got to point this out. The photo that Louis Vuitton released today of him announcing the new partnership. Yeah. He's in the same camouflage-style puffer jacket that one of the... Shador. Uh, Sh- that, was it Shador that wore that? Shiloh or Shador, I can't remember. Yeah. yeah. One Sanders. of the Sanders brothers wore that puffy jacket in their most recent uh, fashion show. I want to say that that Shador had the puffy jacket on and Shiloh had the construction vest. Yeah. I it was remember. orange. The puffy yeah. coat? There yeah, you go. They had the puffy coat on? Wemba yeah. modeling. Yeah. Uh, Wemby modeling. That's uh, interesting. Just don't be surprised in all of his pregame walk-ups when he's just head-to-toe clad in Louis Vuitton. Victor Wimbanyama someday is going to be going to be the father of a child. You know, like, and I, okay. I'm really curious. I'm going somewhere with this. Where are you going this. with I, that? I take care. Uh, uh, here we go. Here we go. But hold on. Remember when Yao Ming had a baby? He fathered a baby? Okay. Yeah? Remember that? It was a yeah. big controversy because China, the country... Wanted that baby born in China. Right. And and uh, Yao and his wife wanted that baby to have dual citizenship because he was playing for the Rockets at the time. Sure. And China made a big stink about it because Yao was trying to be like, let's have the baby in the U.S. and have dual citizenship. China was like, no, that baby needs to be born in China because mm-hmm. that baby is going to post some people up someday in the Olympics. And I wonder if France will get weird or if the, the French government's just like, eh, say la vie. You know, like the French where, won't care. Wherever you want to have that baby, have that baby. The French won't care. You know, like because Wemby going seven four. Yeah. You know, there's good genes there. I forget that he's only twenty years old. Yeah, he's gonna That's have a baby, but not wild. soon. I would tell Wemby travel, see the world a little before you have kids. That's my advice to a twenty year old seven foot four player. <laughs> All right, leave it here. We're gonna talk some recruiting next. I want to talk a little bit of recruiting. From a, from a variety of perspectives, though, frankly, it's not just going to be about what's going on with recruiting, what's happening with recruiting as it pertains to the Oregon Ducks or uh, Oregon State or Washington State or Washington or the Big Ten or Alabama. I want to get to all that with our next guest, but I also want to talk a little bit of recruiting from a parent perspective. From I get asked a lot. From high school kids who want to catch the eye of a college recruiter, who want to think about everything that they should be thinking about as it pertains to social media and their highlight clips and all of that, how does a, call, how does a high school kid get noticed in today's world? What steps would, would you advise them to take? Our next guest covers college football recruiting on the West Coast. It's located in uh, Southern California. Uh, also a Bay Area native, publisher of Ducks Digest, Max Torres, is joining us. Do we have Max on the line? Yeah, I got you, John. All right, good to hear from you. You're loud and clear, Max. Hey, um, let's start with that stuff. What advice do you get? I'm sure you get parents of high school recruits who reach out to you and say, Hey, Max, how, what what should I be thinking about? What do you tell those parents? Yeah, I think when, God, the, the recruiting process is so complicated now, John, with how much the sport has changed. I think when when those conversations come up, I think it's about trying to get as much exposure as you can. 
uh, if you are maybe someone who's kind of flying under the radar, looking for your your big shot, just going to as many of these camps, these seven-on-seven tournaments as you can, or taking these recruiting visits even, I think that's a big part of it. And then cutting up your game film every week to just show coaches what you're doing, I think that's a big part of it. And then looking on the other side, if, if you are a big-time recruit, I, I think that you kind of have to to navigate these waters pretty carefully. Uh, you know, you got to have a good handle on, you know, who I think is is in the picture or in your son's inner circle when it comes to recruiting because I think that it's kind of a, a dangerous landscape right now with, with just how much money is involved with recruiting in general or even movement at the high school level. You see guys moving year to year. Um, so there, there's a lot of, uh, moving pieces here, but just keeping, keeping your son's, you know, best interest at the forefront of everything. Um, and, and then I think also a big part of it is looking at those coaches that, that want to establish a relationship with the entire family, not just the recruit, not just telling you what you want to hear. Yeah. And I think too, there's a lot of kids out there that, you know, don't yet understand that, you know, the college coaches are hyper-focused on the portal, and there are fewer scholarships in general available to high school kids. How does that manifesting itself? You know, you've covered this for a while. What do you see happening as it pertains to high school kids who would like to get a scholarship and are maybe running up against the uh, a funnel more or a bottleneck where there just aren't as many scholarships available? It's a tough situation right now because you are finding, John, like you mentioned, the the – preference or maybe increased attention to uh, the transfer portal and getting those guys that are kind of ready to go right now. So you're, you're finding that these spots are you know, increasingly more coveted, just the, the high school spots that is. So I think that some of these kids maybe feel pressure to lock in their spot a little bit earlier than, than they have in the past, just obviously on a more general scale. But then you are also going to have those guys that just kind of know hey, I'm a top 50, top 25 guy, and I think I'm going to have a spot for me uh, as long as I want to drag this recruiting process out. So I think it does vary from player to player. Some of those guys, they they have to really, really be calculated. And then there's some other players that are just so big time that they have that luxury of of maybe being able to call some of the shots a bit more than than your average recruit because they are just that high caliber. But I think that um, there's just so much attention being, you know, paid to to the recruiting process and what's going on in a week to week basis. You know, do I go to this event in my area? Do I fly across the country to go compete against top caliber talent, or do I maybe take this recruiting visit? It's just there's there's always something going on every week. It feels like, and I think to me that makes these recruiting windows uh, or the recruiting calendar that much more important because just like these coaches want to capitalize, I think these players do too. And they want to do their best to be as efficient as they can with this process and, and really exploring their options as best as they can. We're talking to Max Torres, uh, who covers college recruiting ducks in particular, Max. Um, I've heard stories about recruits who made money just for taking visits. Um, some say they've seen it. Others have say they never heard about it. How prevalent is that? Kids just going to take an unofficial visit, getting their trip paid for, and getting some walking around money? Uh, I've heard rumors of that before. It's not something that is, I would say, from my experience, incredibly common. 
Um, but it, it does kind of raise that question of, especially with the rule of, you know, uh, as many unofficial, as many official visits, excuse me, as recruits want to take, it kind of muddies the water a little bit. You know, who who's coming to my school to really give us a legitimate look or who's coming to, you know, get in the uniforms and get pictures and post it on their social media account and, you know, continue to grow the hype. So I don't think that it's something that is necessarily super common from what I've heard firsthand in my personal experience. But I mean, those visits are so, so crucial um, that, you know, people will go to some extreme lengths, I would think, to try to get guys on campus, especially if it's a recruitment that's coming down to the final hour and um, you, you just, you can never expect anything to be too dull in today's era of recruiting. So that, that's kind of my take on that. I want to, you know, maybe this is a little close to home for you, but it's, you know, I see interviews with recruits, high school recruits all the time. And, you know, they'll give an interview to an outlet like, you know, like your outlet and, and, and the Ducks Digest, or they'll maybe go to another, uh, website entity and give an interview and, uh, what's in it for the kids? Are, does that help with their profile to do as many interviews as possible? Or what is the strategy there? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think I think at the heart of it is probably more exposure. Um, but I also think that maybe what they can get out of it is if maybe they want to show a staff that they are really interested in them and that they have a legitimate shot in their recruitment, maybe they would be uh, a little bit more likely to, to give multiple interviews to reporters within the same market or, um, or maybe sometimes I, it's hard for me to get, get some of these guys on, on the phone, John, that's, that's part of the reason I moved to Southern California because I don't have to be so reliant on hitting a guy up on DM and then trying to set up a phone interview. I can, go to a camp or go to a practice or go to a game. So I, I think that uh, they, they benefit from it because it, it gets their name more in the circulation, right? If you have me doing it and tweeting about it and then, you know, your Brandon Huffman, your Chad Simmons, you know, your big names in the recruiting industry, I think it just keeps your name in the circulation and, and um, maybe, maybe some guys just have fun with it. We're talking to Max Torres. He covers recruiting. Uh, and he's a national uh, college football recruiting analyst. Uh, focuses mostly on the West Coast, Los Angeles, San Diego area. What do you see in there as far as talent in that area, L.A. and San Diego? There's always ebbs and flows, but you're, I think you're in Long Beach right now. What, what do you see talent-wise in that region? Gosh, there's, there's no shortage of talent out here. I mean, this is the hotbed of college football talent on the West Coast. I think one of the coolest things about living out here. Uh, even if I don't always have the greatest pulse on it, there is always something going on every single weekend, especially here in the off season. I, I do my best to kind of know what's coming so I can try to get, go out, you know, whether it's to San Diego or the Inland Empire, maybe it's a big tournament locally in, in Long Beach. I, the, the talent is, is phenomenal uh, out in this area. I think if you're looking for Quarterback talent, you're, you're going to find it. Obviously, there's a, a great one in the area with Achilles Smith Jr., the 25 quarterback out of San Diego Lincoln. He's a, a duck legacy, so he he's a, a great one that I've gotten to see quite a few times, but you find your elite receivers, you find some great running backs and, and DBs. So there there's just so much talent out here, and then you see guys that fly in from across the country You know, on some of these seven-on-seven seven teams. I got to see California Power 
and they have guys from all over the country. I talked to a top 10 guy in the 26th class out of Mississippi. So you never really know who you're going to run into. But for, for me and what I want to do, try to get my pulse on as many recruitments as I can. It, it really benefits me to go out to these events because you really do not always know who's going to who's gonna go show up, whether it's a player, a recruit, a, a coach, uh, a, a NFL legend. You, you just don't know. So I think it's it keeps me on my toes, uh, and it's just really fun to, to get a feel for kind of what they have going on. There, you know, let's say you're talking to like a high school sophomore who is, you know, going to be a junior next season. They go to a couple camps. Maybe they go to, you know, if they're in the state of Oregon, they'll go to the Oregon State camp during the summer or the Oregon camp. What more should those kids be doing to get exposure? Yeah, I think uh, if, if you're going to those camps, that's obviously a, a great step in the right direction. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, posting your results, posting your highlights. A lot of these camps, they they have um, they have you know testing or combine uh, results that they send out to parents or the the players. So I think just utilizing those resources that you can come across while you're at those camps, I think that's a tremendous asset that a lot of players regardless of their ranking or rating can really lean into so that it makes you easier to find um, with, with all the technology that we have at our fingertips. You got to think that all these coaches have it. And then some even more uh, with advanced scouting and all that. And, and another one that might be a little bit underrated, John um, is, is networking, just striking up a conversation with all the coaches that you come into contact with because you never know, you know, maybe they send your film to, to somebody and, and that's how you land on a school's radar. I just think that there's so many ways that you can leverage yourself and continue to to build your brand and your profile. Um, and I think that networking is one of the biggest things that I've kind of learned um, myself. So I think if, if I were to pass that along to some, some younger recruits, I think that would be uh, something that could be of tremendous value because you never know when those connections are going to come into play. Uh, you never know if you're going to be a guy who's still looking for a home, maybe in the February signing period, which is kind of the late signing period now. Uh, but if you you know can dial up that coach or someone that you met uh, along the way, along your journey, they might be able to give you a hand. I want to ask you about what's going on with Oregon right now. I keep seeing, um, you know, obviously there's some coaching changes, places like Michigan. Um, is Oregon benefiting from sort of that chaos in the ecosystem, Alabama? Arizona, Washington, Michigan. What did you see happen with those schools and how the Ducks may or may not have been involved in, in benefiting? They're absolutely benefiting. I, I don't think that there's too much of a question around that from, from my perspective. You saw the coaching carousel that happened kind of leading up to, to conference championship weekend in early December and then the early signing period in mid-December. And then you saw Nick Saban retire and the mini coaching carousel that came from that. All these other schools, Arizona, Washington, Michigan, Alabama, they're all in the headlines because they got a bunch of question marks. They're looking for answers. But meanwhile, you have recruits. I'm telling, I'm talking to them in these interviews, and they're saying whether it was, whether it factually happened or not, they are saying, you know, Dan Lanning turned down the Alabama job or, you know, he was in the mix for that, but he, he chose to stay at Oregon. So that speaks to the belief that he has and what he's building in Eugene and, I think that when he put out that video, we, we knew that it was going to have big rewards for the Ducks on the recruiting trail, and we're continuing to see it now. It's It's been a little bit slower than I expected. They got a commitment from De La Salle edge rusher Matthew Johnson uh, a 
couple couple weeks ago. But I really feel like they are in a really good spot with a number of 2025 recruits, and I wouldn't be surprised if a recruiting run of commitments was uh, in the near future. Oregon going to the Big Ten. Everyone's talking Ohio State, Oregon. Is there anyone else in that conference that you're thinking about as it pertains to recruiting who's really making advances? Not really, John. I mean, I think Penn State has been a school that has recruited pretty well in that conference. They are ranked ahead of Oregon right now. They have 12 commits to to Oregon's five. But when you're looking at Oregon's long-term competition, once they move to the Big Ten, I guess they're in there now, right? We're in 24. That is going to be their main competition. I think that they've done enough on the field and certainly on the recruiting trail in recent years leading up to this move to the Big Ten to really be on that same level as Ohio State. I'm not saying that they're better, but they can compete with Ohio State on the recruiting trail. That is absolutely true. So looking looking ahead and into the future here, maybe we're going to see some more Dan Lanning versus Ryan Day battles on the recruiting trail, and, and I think that Oregon's got plenty of ammo to walk away with their fair share of wins. What was your reaction to Chip Kelly leaving UCLA? And in your footprint, that had to make a little noise there. That was an interesting one. I think just looking at the sequence of events for that one was pretty strange, John, seeing that there were reports that he was going to get fired and then he didn't get fired, but then he left anyway. (laughs) So I think that it was really a signal that, you know, maybe he, he didn't fit the, the modern, not the modern, just he didn't fit maybe where college football was at right now as it pertains to the demands that it puts on a head coach, right? There's, there's always been that rumor that he doesn't like recruiting. And I think you're seeing, I've seen some more pictures of him out on these visits during the January contact period, but I feel like we all could kind of see, just, just look at the results in the recruiting rankings. UCLA has not prioritized recruiting. So I think his move to the big 10 to become the offensive coordinator at Ohio state, great move for the Buckeyes. I think good move for him because he can really just hone in on the offensive side of the ball and he doesn't have to deal with all of the demands of being a head coach. So it, it was a shocking move for sure. Uh, obviously one that has Oregon ties because he coached at Oregon. He's going to be coaching against the Ducks across the side on the other sideline when the Buckeyes come to Eugene in October. Um, but it was a wild move. And um, I, I think I'm really just happy that he is staying in the college level because we're seeing so many college coaches opt to return to the NFL. And a lot of people think it's just because there's not many guardrails on the game right now of college football. Yeah. I think uh, it's just interesting to watch what is happening. Max Torres, college football recruiting analyst covers the West coast. Finally, Max, before I cut you loose, um, you know, just in general, where can people find your work? Ducks digest. And, and obviously you're on Twitter as well at uh, M Torres sports. Absolutely. No, appreciate that, John. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at mtoursports, same username on Instagram. You can read me at ducksdigest.com, subscribe to my YouTube channel at Oregon Football Max Taurus, and listen to me on the Ducks Dish podcast. Max Taurus, thank you, man. I appreciate you popping on with us. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me. Leave it here. Some parting thoughts coming up. This back and forth between Doc Rivers, J.J. Reddick, Now Austin Rivers getting in on the action. Um, for people who don't know, J.J. Redick uh, not happy saying Doc Rivers just makes excuses, excuses, excuses.
I, I've it. seen the trend now. I've seen the trend for years. What's the trend? The trend is always making excuses. Get Doc, we get it. Taking over a team in the middle of the season is hard. It's hard. We get it. Just like getting traded in the middle of the season is hard for a player. We get it. Mm-hmm. But it's always an excuse. It's always throwing your team under the bus. They lose to Memphis. Oh, it's his players. Memphis was playing G League guys and two-way guys. And then you look at his quotes over the weekend. Now he wants to take credit for the James Harden trade to the Clippers working out. He wants credit for that. There's just no. <laughs> there's never accountability with that guy. Well, there's never say. accountability. Now Austin Rivers, sounding off. For someone who's not accountable, he seems to always be held responsible. Considering he's the guy that's always fired when things don't go right. <laughs> he got fired in the bubble. Uh, for a 3-1 lead versus the Denver Nuggets, which in half his team didn't want to be there. They had players saying that their mind wasn't there. He had guys leave. That happened. Then he gets fired for losing to a team that was favored over him, which was the Celtics last year. Um, it seems like he's always responsible. It's just it's strange coming from J.J. And I have some love for J.J. You're my dookie. You know that. You're my bro. I love you. <laughs> um, it's just your best years were with the Clippers. I don't think he saved your career. I appreciate you, Pat. But I don't think... It, I mean, I, this just seems a little bit weird. They're, they're three and seven. Dame's missed most of those games. Milton's missed a lot of those games. They haven't even had their full team yet. We'll see what happens. The pressure is there. They do have to perform. But in terms of accountability, like what, what are we doing here? Your best years in the NBA were when you played for him in the Clippers. Let's not forget that. I don't know if there's like frustration there or there's tension there between you. I know a lot of times we had to sit you towards the end of the game due to defensive reasons, but you had your best years as a starter there, especially our whole system was drafted around you because you're a shooter. You're not a guy who could put the ball on the floor. You were a strictly shoot guy. You're not like Clay Thompson or Steph who could put the ball on the floor. You were a guy who could catch and shoot, and you did it at a high level. Hell of a career, by the way. Big fan. But your best years were under him. It's just very ironic and kind of weird that you have this energy towards him in terms of him never, ever being accountable, considering he's always been responsible. Not that Austin Rivers is sensitive here, but he just... He just said J.J. Redick didn't play defense and was just a catch-and-shoot guy, uh, firing back a little bit. I, I think it's interesting because Austin starts talking about it. J.J. Redick says it's always an excuse there's no accountability. Austin defends his father by pointing out that he was held responsible when the teams didn't perform well. I think he's muddying the waters. J.J.'s talking about personal accountability. Like, early in the show, I said it was clunky, and it's on me. I thought I wasn't very good early in the show today. That's accountability. Now, responsibility is what happens after. Of course, you're going to be held responsible, but Austin's not really, you know, accepting the issue there. The issue is, J.J.'s saying, Doc Rivers just chronically makes excuses and never accepts his personal responsibility for what's going on. And I think that's a fair point. I think it's a really fair point. What do you make of that spat? Yeah, I think it's a little interesting. And Patrick Beverly got in on it with some tweets saying, you know, J.J., he saved your career. Doc Rivers did. And, you know, now Patrick Beverly plays for Doc Rivers. So that it makes a lot of sense he does that. It seems like (laughs) a lot of, of, hey, listen to my podcast vibes here. Like, this is what we're going to start talking about on all our podcasts to me. But (laughs) I don't know. Like, Doc, I've been, I've said this since when they hired him. Like, Doc has done less with more as a coach, more than anybody in the NBA. So, like, it doesn't shock me that a guy like J.J. Redick doesn't necessarily respect him as a head coach. Like, he loses out, and he loses his players, and they lose the locker room. So, 
I think there is probably a little hostility between JJ and Doc. And I understand Austin Rivers for coming in and saying, no, dude, like my dad gave me a chance in LA when no one else was going to give me a chance. And so he's a good coach. He's won a championship. I think they're all kind of right in some weird way, but I also get the vibe like, hey, there's no NBA games till Thursday. Let's start talking about something. Yeah, but do you see the difference like between yeah between personal accountability, Doc saying, "Hey, this is on me. I haven't been very good, you know, to start the year with this team," and then the responsibility. Like I think Austin's right. Like his dad does get blamed if they don't win the games because it's your job to win the damn games. But he's missing the point. JJ's saying. Doc Rivers never accepts responsibility, and I think that is a problem. All right, tomorrow we'll have a great show for you. I appreciate everybody who's here.